Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We're presented by CLNS Media. Today on the show, I'm going to be honest with you. I had like a two-hour podcast scheduled with Cole Zwicker that we actually recorded on Friday afternoon. I was going to release it Saturday morning and then five minutes before I was releasing it, Draymond Green, the biggest free agent in the 2020 uh, free agency class, decided to sign a four-year $100 million extension, thus uh, mooting at least 15 minutes of our conversation with Cole. So, And now you get me. And now you get Dieter Kurtenbach, who is here. I still have on the back end of this, on the back end of this conversation, I still have a good hour and a half, hour 45 minutes with Cole that you're going to be able to listen to. We're going to talk about 2020 free agency, CJ McCollum's extension, and uh, we're also going to talk a little bit about draft prospects at the end. But uh, here for the first 20 minutes, it is my dear friend, Dieter Kurtenbach. How are you doing, Hi, Sam? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, big news. I was able to change my Twitter name to at Dieter and I'm amped. I'm just. Wait, really? Yeah. Yeah. It had been 12 years in the making. And. Oh, no. This is something that you and I have talked about, like over drinks for at least four years. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It happened, baby. And I didn't pay a cent. It was just oh, was, oh such a sweet victory for your boy. Um yeah, I, I, had, I had found some – I'm on Product Hunt every day. I just find that stuff interesting. And one day, like a year and a half ago, they had a website, app, whatever you want to call it, that basically would track Twitter usernames and if they were available or not. And I had totally forgotten about it until, let's say, I guess this time last week. We're talking Saturday morning. Uh this time last week, I get an email and it's, you know, deep and buried in the promotions folder or whatever. And just says at Dieter is available. And I go, oh, man. So I immediately like just lock it down and, and keep it as sort of a, a side one. And then through work, they were able to just swap at D Kurtenbach for at Dieter. And so I didn't lose followers. Not that I deserve them. Uh, didn't lose followers. Didn't lose verification. It, it was sweet. And then I just kind of locked down at D Kurtenbach after that and made it a reference. Like I, I'm totally amped. The, uh, the pastor in St. Pete, Florida, I guess just gave it up after, after years of me pestering him and offering him money and, uh, and threatening to take him down. But this this is a big win for your boy right now. So big, so big. Uh, I was just, I, I, this would be something I would tell Andre Iguodala like three times a year. Like Andre said, the best gift he's ever gotten, other than his children, was when his agent got him at Andre, and he never asked how much <laughs> it cost. But it's just so cool. He's the only Andre. Now I figured that should be a lot easier for me. Um, but alas, uh, it, it proved to be quite a journey. So I highly recommend uh, highly recommend you follow at Dieter. Uh, I don't know why you would actually do it, but it, it's pretty boss and I'm feeling good about it. And let me ride a wave of positivity on Twitter for the first time in a decade. I'm very excited to just tweet at Dieter. Like I have I'm to the, like put, I have to put like your Twitter name into this uh, tweet link whenever I send it out. And it's oh, just going to say at Dieter. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's great. All the other Dieters can just eat it. I am the only one and they all have to bow in front of me. That is so great. Do you think at some point Draymond Green is going to get at Dre? I, I need to at Dre would be something. I need to actually see who at Draymond is. At Draymond is just one guy who has two tweets. <laughs> two tweets. March eighth, two thousand eight. Surfing the net. I, I will say this: Dre yeah. is available. I think at Dre. No. Yes. yes. Wow. You want, you want to get back in Draymond's good graces? 
at Dre. This is, this is how you is, do it. It is. I think. I think you're right. I think it's totally available. Yeah, you need to text Dre right now and be like, dude. Yeah. Okay. Come on. Okay. Oh, I know. I know. He just came into some money, so maybe there's a finder's fee. <laughs> so Draymond Green. Uh, the reason Dieter's here is to talk about Draymond Green's four-year, hundred million dollar extension. So, as I said earlier, Cole and I talked about Dre for like fifteen, twenty minutes or so on the podcast that you're going to listen to in a minute here. And what we came to, I've deleted that section from the podcast now because we're going to talk about it and move it up. Um, what we came to basically was we felt that Draymond would get something like three years. 90 to 100 million on the open market next year the question was just whether or not he'd get the fourth year um here draymond green is locking himself in for four years 100 million and honestly i don't think it's that crazy to do in his case because the teams that have cap space next year i think you're talking the hawks you're talking uh who else memphis i think can make space there are a few other like losing teams that can make space the knicks can obviously make max cap space if they want and they to. love power forwards they do um ultimately though like draymond green is the warriors on some level like everything yes. about their culture that they've built over the course of this last like half decade run he's he's the reason for that so i understand him deciding you know what I'm going to lock this down now. I'm going to stay with Golden State for the next five years, basically, unless they trade him Mm -hmm. and, you know, commit to this franchise now as opposed to having to go through the dog and pony show of free agency next year. Well, I think most people were thinking that Draymond having already sort of taken a discount on the contract that will end this upcoming offseason was going to at least test the market in a larger way as to drive up um Drive I have, I have a hot take on that pod on that contract, by the way. On the on the five years eighty two million dollar one? Yeah. I'm all ears. Uh the fact that he did not get and this is something that Nate Jones mentioned on Twitter, mm-hmm. the fact that he did not get an opt out in year five is A yeah. insane. It was kind of insane at the time. And B looks incredibly bad now because he would have cashed in heavily had he yes. had that opt out. Like, he would have cashed in, what, let's say he would be making 18 this year. Dre would be making at least 30 this year, mm-hmm. I would think. Maybe he didn't. Maybe he would have taken, like, a small discount again. Um, yeah. He'd be making at least 30 this year. So that's $12 million extra in his pocket just for this year alone. And then, you know, six, seven million more a year uh, for the next four years. So it's a – I will not name the agent who negotiated that <laughs> deal. I wonder why. But I will say that this agent has made mistakes in the past. Uh, he's not with that agent anymore. He is now with Clutch Sports, and Rich Paul yes. represents him. So uh, Lord knows that uh, given Clutch's reputation, Draymond clearly signed off on this uh, because Clutch's, Clutch's MO is to get as much as possible at all given times uh, right. and, and, and full player empowerment. And this is sort of a, a, a different viewpoint of player empowerment from my perspective. Yeah, and this is a really interesting move, if only because, again, he was the top free agent on the market next year, assuming that Anthony Davis, uh, right. doesn't have a total disaster year in Los Angeles, right? Doesn't go um, full Dwight Howard. Right. Like, as long as this doesn't, like, end just absolutely miserably, Anthony Davis is probably going to be a Laker next year, next summer. Yes, yes. But with Dre, someone would have given him $33 million a year, I think, pretty easily in my I opinion. believe so, yeah. Or, like, 
30 well i think his max is something like 32 33 yeah i think um, it was four even years he, 151 was the max someone else could give him right and even if he doesn't that's even if he doesn't win defensive player of the year and if he wins defensive player of the year things right. jump up in terms of tax bracket again i don't think he was ever going to get into the super max levels just because i think there are so many questions about the way he's going to age but correct I do think that he would have gotten, let's say, four years, 120, 125, something like that on the market. and Someone would have done it. I, I'm, I'm certain someone yeah. would have. Like, if you're the Hawks and you mm-hmm. are building this team around Trey Young, would you rather pay Draymond Green to teach John Collins how to play defense and to solidify this defense long-term around Trey Young and give, like, you could easily make a case Atlanta should offer him four years, $151 million, um, yeah. with Travis Schlenk who Dre is obviously very, very comfortable with, given that I think Schlenk played a massive role in drafting him, right? He did, yes. So, like, if you're... That's kind of the marketplace here. Essentially, you could have taken four years, 150 in Atlanta, which, again, I think Atlanta probably would have paid uh, to get... I don't know if they would have gone all the way up there, but I think that they probably would have been the highest bidder and they would have been the most... uh, motivated in to get him you can see the clearest yeah. fit there they're trying to be the warriors east uh while the warriors are trying to be the spurs the the hawks are trying to be the warriors and uh and schlank understands the value draymond green has for, firsthand and i think so much of draymond green's value is sort of unquantifiable it's basketball right. iq and leadership and emotional uh, just emotional leadership and things like that. Like you, you look at the box score, Draymond Green is not worth what he just got. Uh, but you you take into account all the other things that he does, and this looks like a discount. So yeah, I, I would imagine that Atlanta would have been smart enough to uh, to offer him more than maybe the Warriors, maybe the Warriors, but certainly any other team other than the Warriors would have been able to offer. I think that right. that's a that's a fair assessment. Certainly more than four hundred. I think yes, is yes, the way I, I think that's fair. Because you got to pay, you um, got to pay him to leave, right? Like, there's a certain level of that, and I think that that's what kind of where we're at with this four-year, one hundred million dollar deal. Like, he has a good thing. Is it really right. worth testing it all that much? So here's the question I asked Cole before deleting this, and I'll ask it to you: How do you think Draymond Green's game will age? I think it's. I, I'm a little bit more optimistic than most people, but only because most people, or at least this conversation, seems to lead to some very draconian responses, like. Draymond Green's basketball IQ allows him at his peak physical form to be two steps ahead. I, I do think that he'll stay a, a step ahead for, for a while now. That said, I, I, I understand uh, the skepticism and why people would say that the floor is very low and when the bottom falls out, it is going to be painful and difficult. But um, man, I I honestly think that with the the way that he plays and, and the things that he does, he's going to be, so long as he keeps his body in good shape, and we saw it at the end of last year, he's he's going to be a value for the Warriors for at least the next three. That fourth year, I don't know, but um, that's a long ways away. There's a lot of things that can change between now and then, and who the hell knows where the Warriors are as a team at that juncture. I, I wouldn't so much worry about that fourth year uh, if I was Golden State, because I think you can get three really, really good years out of Draymond Green on this. After that, I don't I don't think I would want to <laughs> I would want to re up, but for the next 4 years I would actually feel comfortable with it. So, they're essentially paying for Draymond's with this 4-year extension because he still has the 1 year on top of it. So it's 5 mm-hmm. years, 118 or so. Mm-hmm. So, you're essentially getting 
his age, and let's call them for playoff runs here because that's ultimately what the Warriors are still going to care about, yes. his age, 31, 32, 33, and 34 playoff runs. So I think even yeah. those last two years are concerning. That's fair. That's fair. To me. But at the end of the day, I am actually not as worried about years one and two. And I think there's yeah. like a real case to be made given if they are still making real playoff runs then which i see no reason to believe they wouldn't be making real playoff runs keep d'angelo russell or not Mm -hmm. i think that just given the way draymond green's game plays up in the playoffs he had like six triple doubles in the playoffs this year is still among the best defensive players in the entire nba at his peak i strongly believe that he is worth probably 40 million dollars a year for the next three years so let's say they're getting something like what is it because the deal starts at 23 they're getting 17 million in surplus value in year one and probably 15 million in surplus value in year two of this extension Mm -hmm. um like i think that he's probably worth 80 million dollars in the first two years of this extension alone so all you need is a third then and it's you're you're good i mean it's not great for the salary cap but yeah and even if he's half as good then you're still getting commensurate value out of this deal this is a home run deal for the Warriors, I think there's no 100%. circumstance where this is a bad deal for them. Looking at from it from Draymond's perspective, ultimately it depends on what his priorities are, right? Like how much of this is him caring about maximizing his money? Ultimately, I think he didn't care about that. And Correct. another thing that I wanted to just kind of bring up is there's an idea I've kind of been thinking about recently with like Otto Porter, for instance, who we'll talk about later in this podcast with Cole. Otto Porter is a really good basketball player. He's probably a top 50, 60 player in the NBA right now. That's fair. He's treated like nothing remotely near that, in my opinion, because of the contract. We get into these asset value discussions so easily because they are incredibly important, first and foremost. But second, I think that it serves to diminish the value of the player sometimes. And I wonder if Ah. in Draymond's case he will be happier knowing that he's always a discount. I don't know if he's thinking like this now. I totally understand that logic, yeah. But I wonder if there is something there where we're always going to view Draymond now as this guy who took discounts. And Mm -hmm. as someone who, in Draymond's case, I do believe he cares about legacy. Would you agree knowing the man pretty well? (laughs) Uh, To say he cares about it's an understatement. Legacy is everything for Draymond Green. And like that's not hyperbole. Like. This is one of the few people on the planet that push comes to shove, I think, would play for free as a ring chaser. Right. So I think as someone who cares about legacy, this is something that's really going to age well with his legacy is being the guy who always took less to stay with the Warriors and to be the guy for Golden State. Uh, You know, maybe maybe, honestly, like if I was Golden State, like it would take significant significant uh incentive for me to trade him over the next three years because of that really yeah and and if you get to the point where it's like oh we should trade him uh that might be a difficult contract to move in general it would have to go to some team that's clearly just tanking in which case he's going to be really unhappy with you and uh Knowing Draymond the way I know Draymond, and, and we're not like best buddies, not coming over the house or anything, but uh, I, I view Draymond as somewhat of a mythical figure, and I talk to him fairly frequently about um, the minutia of basketball, and I, I derive a lot of value from those conversations, and I hope I'm not too annoying to him in that regard, but uh, this guy only wants to be known as a winner, and everyone says that, 
But then when the push comes to shove, uh, they're really about their money, too. And Draymond has found a really good, he, he has done a really good job in his career of being able to split the difference in yeah. um, in the last two contracts. He got the fourth year, so he has a little bit more security. He's going to get paid through a season, which I think everyone's in agreement uh, might be a little dicey. And I think that there's some credit that needs to go to Draymond Green in regard to he understands one where he came from. He hasn't forgotten that he was a second round pick and that, frankly, he is not in a position to get the money that he is getting in any of these contracts, whether it be the one that he's about to end or the one that's upcoming. If he isn't in the Warriors system and it, the perfect storm happens, if Mark Jackson is still the coach of the Golden State Warriors, Draymond Green is not the Draymond Green that we take time on a Saturday morning to talk about on a podcast. If Steph Curry and Clay Thompson aren't there and don't have the exact personalities that they have, uh, Draymond Green is not as effective of a player. If the game didn't change the way it changed at the time it changed, and Steve Kerr wasn't sitting in the right places to know, okay, the entire game has changed, we got to push it to the next level, and then sees a Draymond Green. It, like, all of these things had to happen in perfect unison for Draymond Green to be a basketball revolutionary the way that he is, in the way that he will, I believe, eventually be viewed once all of the... Uh, villainous stuff kind of fades away because it's totally ethereal and, and unimportant when it when it comes down to legacy um he he knows that him and the warriors are tied together and he gave a little bit here and the warriors gave a little bit there and a credit to draymond green for being self-aware enough to understand that he is not the easiest easiest player to value long term that there is some risk involved in signing him long term and credit to the Warriors for valuing what he has already brought them and um, and putting that loyalty in monetary form in both ways. I, I, I just think that this is a really good deal for both parties. And I think more than anything else, it's going to be big because the Warriors have enough BS going on this upcoming season where they're going to have to be fighting for a playoff spot. But at the same time, if Clay Thompson comes back at 100% and who the hell knows, it's Clay Thompson. He's totally inscrutable. Um, and he's like the Wolverine out there. So he could come back at better than 100% like he promises or not like a normal person. But if Clay Thompson comes back, they are then very much part of a championship conversation should they make the postseason. Like there's a lot of stuff going on with the Warriors this year. And one of those things that they will not have to deal with is the question of if Draymond Green is going to resign at the end of the year. And Draymond said, oh, I'm going to go and try to get the Supermax and try to win Defensive Player of the Year and try to get my money. And he talks that big game because that's Draymond Green. But when it comes down to it, he values winning and he values legacy. And he can still win in Golden State. Uh, it would be tricky for him really to win anywhere else. I don't think uh, any other team that is in a position to win is going to go out and give him the money or were, was going to go out and give him the money that maybe he thought he deserved because ultimately he is a risky proposition. So then you're joining a losing team where you just don't have the same effect and a lot of your mystical powers probably fly away because there's you're, you're just not in the perfect scenario anymore. And on the flip side of that, like – I, it's it, yeah it's he will go down as as he's gonna have his number retired he's gonna have a statue outside chase center he's gonna go down as one of the all-time greats and if they win a championship at any point over the next couple of years um he's totally immortal in the bay area and i think uh he, he understands he understands that you can't put an actual monetary value on something like that you see what chris paul has done his entire career 
um, where he's, let's be honest, and, and to, I understand his role in the Players Association and that he kind of has to do stuff like this, but Chris Paul has put money over winning if you just want to make it that simple his entire career. And there have been a lot of guys like that. And we're in this total player empowerment age and guys are about getting their money and guys are about manipulating things to get into the right situation. And they're, and they're probably right in that they are bigger than the franchise. And Draymond Green knows that he is not bigger than the franchise and knows that frankly, if he gives up a little, he can get a lot more out of the situation. And, uh, it's a unique spot for him to be in. You know, I don't know if there's many other guys in that scenario, but I, I, you got to give the guy some credit for not just, you know, hardlining and making this difficult and challenging, and uh, and just being happy with 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 what he's got. I'll think back to to a quote he gave to Chris Haynes after the 2018 championship, which is um, a little bit more money isn't going to change my neighborhood, but championships can change my life. And I don't know if they ever win another championship. But so long as he wears a Warriors jersey, he's immortal in the Bay Area. And that's a pretty good place to be immortal. And uh, and, and he's going to be wearing a Warriors jersey, I would venture to say, for at least another two or three years and perhaps even longer than that. So I don't know what kind of price you put on immortality, but uh, you get $100 million in the process, too. That's pretty good. He's going to be immortal in the Bay Area? He's going to be a basketball Hall of Famer. I feel yes. very strongly about that. I, yes. I don't see a world where he doesn't make the Hall of Fame. Um, he is, if they win a title over the course of the next, you know, three years, while yeah. Steph, Clay, and him are all in the middle of this, you know, what we could call their primes, their late primes. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think That's it's going to be hard. To, it's going to be hard to keep him out of like the top one hundred players ever. I think like it's going to be yeah. really hard because. This team, in many ways, like if they win another title, I mean, they've already changed basketball in right. so many incalculable ways. Mm-hmm. But he's, I mean, Steph and he are the two guys that have broken the mold in so many ways. They're the guys that have broken the game open and made it so difficult to guard the Warriors, have made it uh, so easy for the Warriors to unlock their defense in Draymond's case. Yes. And historically Draymond Green is a historically relevant player no matter what happens from this point forward it's just he has a chance to be genuinely among the elite of the all-time elite in the but NBA he, and that is something that it that can't be priced I think that it cannot be priced no and and listen I, I think that we all like to play the you know uh, fantasy GM game and it would have been interesting to see let's say if he does go to Atlanta right the Warriors say that's too rich for our blood and you go to he goes to Atlanta or some other team and if he does it if he, he does what he did with the Warriors if, if all of those ineffable positive qualities that he brings to Golden State uh, somehow rub off on a different team maybe that does augment his legacy uh, in a positive yeah. sense but that's a risky play and Draymond Green didn't get this far and didn't have to go through all the crap that he went through in his career as a basketball player to take risks at this juncture, because again, yes, it's money that we're never going to see you and I in our lives, probably combined, if not certainly combined, like we can't comprehend those decisions when it comes to turning down the thought of $50 million or the thought of $150 million. Like someone turning down even the possibility of that is ludicrous to us, but not when you're in the position and not when um, not when you have a good thing going. At a certain point, it does become funny money. And uh, right. 
It, like, if you're telling yeah. me that I can be known as what? Like, one of the greatest people to ever do something. And all I would have to do is take $100 million versus $150 million? Yeah, I yeah. would probably do that. You know what yeah. I mean? Absolutely. And, and, and you mentioned the the aspect of him and Steph changing things. Like, I, I do want to hammer home this point. Like, Draymond Green is the Stephen Curry of defense. You guys just don't watch enough defense. You don't care about defense. And I can't blame you. It's hard to care about it to understand what Draymond Green has meant to the overall state of the game. Like, Draymond Green, when he came into the league, and it's so hard to f- remember this stuff now, but when he came into the league, he was a tweener without a position. And Mark Jackson was playing him as a three. And Steve Kerr wasn't some genius. He just watched the NBA Finals in 2014 and saw what Boris Diaw was doing and said, oh, shit, we can do that with Draymond Green. And sure enough, David Lee doesn't start the season healthy. Uh, Warriors, you know, start Draymond at power forward uh, and quickly shift to a small ball lineup uh, for because of necessity without David Lee around. And let's not forget, David Lee was the all-star on that Warriors team, and it's working, and it's clicking. And the Warriors get off to a great start in 2015. They are the upstart team, and David Lee comes back, and, and Steve Kerr goes, we're just going to keep riding this thing. And they rode it to a championship that year, <laughs> 73 wins the next year. And then Kevin Durant shows up, and it only takes a great thing and, and makes it all time and um and they win two more championships and and get to another finals five straight finals uh when it's all said and done like yes steph curry because it's offense and it's flashy and it's fun and it's interesting and and eminently engaging and his personality adds to all of it like stephen curry no one questions if he's an all-time great the only question is where he sort of falls on that that list and there's a lot more of the story to be written draymond green maybe we've already seen the best draymond green has already has played i think that that's probably the case i think 2016 was as good as draymond green's ever been um but he changed the game just as much on an equally important side of the ball just not as flashy not as fun not as interesting but as soon as draymond green started doing what he did with the small ball lineup the death lineup and then the hamptons five lineup you've seen the nba change dramatically not necessarily so that we have a bunch of Draymond Greens running around, but but so that Draymond Greens could exist and that wingspan became not just a, a valued thing, but pretty much the only thing when it came to centers. And rim protection wasn't necessarily just getting some hulking seven-footer. You can ask Roy Hibbard what he thinks about Draymond Green's ascent in the NBA. Like, the game has changed dramatically, not just because of Steph, but because of Draymond. And ultimately, there's so many little things about Draymond that rub people the wrong way. And I totally understand why he's brash and you don't understand why a guy who shoots that poorly and doesn't seem to affect the game, at least in the box score statistics, as much as others, so many others on his team talks that kind of trash. But if you watch him day in, day out, you understand just he's the night crawler out there. He's in five different spots at once. You don't understand how it's possible when you're really watching. Um, when you see that, you understand he can talk as much as he wants, and that part of that part of that talking is building his team up because you have Stephen Curry who doesn't want to be a trash talker, doesn't want to be, you know, the brash leading leading guy, doesn't want to be the Jordan uh, of the team. You got Clay Thompson who's the stoic. You got the nice guy, the stoic, and the bad guy, and those three together create something that collectively is going to be impossible to recreate, I think, down the line. So 
50 million dollars who, who gives a shit he's going to make way more than that just staying around here and, and you know doing car commercials and he's going to get way more than anything i think he makes when it's all said and done because he's going to do 30 straight years of television at probably 15 million dollars a pop like the, the the man is set up for life and he he does he didn't forget that this is this is all pretty impossible when you set it out initially so what's it matter if if he's not getting maybe everything he's truly worth yeah, I think that's probably the best way to end this podcast. Do you have any other strong opinions you want to throw out there on Dre? Dre's the best. I mean, like, I, I, I Stephen Curry, I can understand. Clay Thompson, I can understand. I have been the foremost Draymond Green stand because it, it is things, he does things that are not totally understood at all times. And, um, Maybe this is just another part of those things, but this guy seems to have a much clearer viewpoint of the landscape, of himself, and frankly of others than really – there are a few people that I think see everything as clearly as Draymond Green in general. He is brilliant. Uh, he doesn't necessarily let you in on that brilliance all that often, but when he does, it is stunning. And uh, I, I just wouldn't second-guess him pretty much on anything because uh he just always seems to turn out right and when he is right he'll let you know about 10 times over how right he was and that you doubted him so uh yeah i i strange i i will say more than anything else though i'm very happy just as someone who has to cover this warriors team that we're not going to have to deal with the the draymond questions all year because last year's kevin durant thing almost broke me uh everything had to be viewed from this giant lens when kevin durant's standing in the corner not really trying all that hard because steph has the ball it wasn't just that it wasn't just the immediacy and whatever that meant. It was so much bigger and so much more ambiguous. And um, it gets frustrating over the course of 100 plus games where everything is everything has to be this bigger story, this bigger concept. Draymond certainly doesn't carry the same inscrutability as Kevin Durant. He'll tell you. But um, I'm just glad that we're not going to have to expand everything for another 82 game season and that we can just see if this Warriors team is good enough to do it without Kevin Durant with the the roster that they've built with D'Angelo Russell like there's enough interest there's enough intrigue on this team that we should we should be able to you know microanalyze probably to the point of fault every single game and without the Draymond thing looming over the entire season in whatever way it would have um, we can actually do that. We can actually talk about basketball, and that's a that's a uh, a novel change for the Golden State Warriors over the last couple of years, and I'm very much looking forward to it. Yeah, I, th- I think Dre is one of the smartest basketball players that has ever played in the NBA, both yep. on the court and off the court. Um, yeah, I'm excited. He, cer- he, cer- he, is- he certainly is not an incredible athlete, so he's got to have something going on. It's, uh, it- it's a lot of brains and a, and a lot of gall. Yeah, so uh, Dieter... Thank you for coming on. Do you want to plug anything? You just wrote about Dre, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah, I pretty much said everything I said on here. Uh, probably in more concise terminology, if I'm being totally honest. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, there's a column on the Mercury News. You can follow me at Dieter, and it's on there somewhere. I mean, it's it's at D-I-E-T-E-R. Oh, God, I don't have to ever spell my last name again uh, when Dude. I plug my Twitter. That's really awesome. Uh, I will have to spell your last name more than you do now because I had to send out yeah. wedding invitations and had to send out all that. Although you still have to do that too because your wedding's coming up. Uh, oh boy! That's luckily, it. luckily we're no. I feel like I feel like we're doing it in waves. 
right? So, because yeah. uh, it's in Scotland, it is uh, a year from now. Like, there's a certain level of um, calmness. We've gotten a lot of stuff done already. There, the beautiful part of doing your wedding very far away, as opposed to you, who's doing your wedding like six blocks away from your house. Is, oh, it's uh, less than that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was giving I was giving you some slack, but yeah, like I'm gonna walk to my wedding. Um, in, in instead of I who have to get on a, like a 12 hour flight. Uh, the beauty of that is if you, you arrange something, you really don't have that many options. You can't like test out like cakes or meals. It's just like, that sounds good. And if it doesn't work out, like you don't feel bad about it because you're just like, what the hell was I supposed to do? It's a 12 hour flight away. Like, yeah, hope it point. works. It, 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 we get so much paralysis by analysis. This one just, whatever, hope it works out. And if it doesn't, eh, fuck it. Especially the two of us. Good God. Uh, all right, Dieter. <laughs> Thank you for coming on. The next voices you hear are going to be me and Cole talking about 2023 agency that is about now to get a lot smarter. Draymond Green less. Thanks, Dieter. Adios. Cole's Wicker is here. We are going to run through 2020 free agency because it's never too early to talk about free agency at this stage, just with the way that the NBA works now. We just saw a massive period of tampering in the league. We know that it happens across the entire NBA now. So, Cole, how much are you looking forward to 2020 free agency? I mean, when you look at the list of potential free agents, we have a lot of player options, but it's a weaker class. But it's, I mean, free agency is always interesting and coming after the draft. One of the best times of the year, but this isn't exactly the class that you get super excited about. No, no, it is not. Not even a little bit, in my <laughs> opinion. Uh, so let's, uh, we're, we're also going to talk about Isaiah Joe. Uh, we're going to talk about, what, what else do we got on the agenda today, Cole? I think we're going to start, honestly, with CJ McCollum's extension. Is that right? That is right. We are going to talk about CJ. So CJ extended for three years, $100 million on top of his contract that already had two years remaining on it. So the deal is something in total, like five years, 150 something like that, right? Yes, I believe that's the total. It's $100 million in new money. So what is your thought here in terms of, is CJ worth the extra three years on the deal? And then also, what do we think of what this says about Portland? Because they now have Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum locked in through 2020, 2021, 2022, 2023, and 2024. So uh, both of those guys are locked in. Where, Where are the Blazers here going forward as a team? Well, I mean, this is their identity. This has been their core throughout the last five years or so has been these two guys in the backcourt. I, I get the the aim here to lock them up long term. You, you gave Dame that money and now you give CJ. I, I don't want to say it's below market value because I think it's pretty close. His extension money is about $14 million less than what he could have earned via the full veteran extension. This is kind of interesting timing because we just talked about this last week podcast as far as all the extensions so a little bit of a discount I'm, i think cj is going to age well honestly because this game's not really you know based on athleticism it's a lot of shot making it's a lot of handling creating separation that way so i think from a blazer standpoint they don't have a ton of flexibility that's what you look for and they're pretty much locked in with these two guys they can carve some flexibility out starting in like 2021 depending on what they do with Nurkic's final year. But I, I don't have strong objections to this. I know there are some takes like they, you know, the Blazers, they're kind of condemning themselves to like upper middle echelon contention. They need another piece. I think that's been pretty clear all along, but I don't think this deal really harms them in that way. Like a worst case, maybe CJ becomes a trade candidate now that he's locked in 
to this long-term contract that I don't think is like a crazy amount of, of money. Like I think it's probably a little high potentially, but honestly, I don't have a problem with, with the number. So yeah, I thought it was weird that people decided to get their takes off about the Blazers now. Um, people like came into my mentions after I said, yeah, this is like a totally reasonable deal for both sides. And they were like, yeah, but like there's a ceiling on this Blazers team. Maybe. I mean, that's probably true. Uh, I mean, Damian Lillard hasn't stopped taking leaps in his game. So like maybe we shouldn't just assume that uh, he's not going to continue to do that. CJ keeps getting better. They've done a pretty good job on the margins ever since that disaster summer of 2016. So I don't want to like rule out that this is a team that has a ceiling first and foremost. And second, they just showed that their ceiling is Western Conference Finals. Like, that's a damn good ceiling. Like, I don't know why we shouldn't applaud this team for continuing to go down this road whenever they've already shown that they're really good. Like, this is a really good team worth keeping together that the city really rallies behind. Yeah, I agree with that sentiment. And I think if you're looking at this roster, there are some weaknesses, but I don't think they're induced by Lillard or McCollum. And yes, giving those guys long-term money limits your versatility to some extent, but you want them under contract anyway. Like They're the guys that are the core pieces of your team. You have to win on the margins. You have to win in the ancillary ways, putting better talent around them. So I'm with you. I think you, you put it really well as far as... Like, this is not a bad value contract. And I think I would add, again, looking at these intangibles for a deal like this, and Portland is very culture-based. You have Damian there his entire career. I think CJ is a very big part of that. And so locking him up and having those guys as the fixtures of your franchise for 10-plus years, I think that's only going to be a positive. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. Uh, I don't know. Like, is there anything else worth, like, discussing with this deal? It does seem... This is, like, the most cut-and-dry situation that I can really remember in terms of like one of these extensions and one of these free agency situations just because yeah of course CJ wants to stay there yeah of course the Blazers want to lock him up and do this like CJ is really good I mean is there maybe so you think CJ's game is going to age well I guess why do you say that is one thing worth at least exploring yeah I think just because his game is so much based on his shot making ability and he's not like he's creating a ton of separation with like dynamic bursts he's not like a crazy downhill athlete he just gets to his spots better than almost anybody in the league at the guard position. A lot of craft in his game. And I think those guys that are mostly jump shot induced, those guys tend to age better because if you like take out a little bit of their athleticism, you don't see like a precipitous decline in their overall play offensively. I just like to bet on the skill guys aging. And I think CJ is honestly like in the top five or six as far as guard shot makers in the league, as far as skill level. I, I don't see that eroding. Yeah, offensively, I don't have any concerns at all. I do have like some small concerns about him aging well defensively. Uh, again, like not a guy okay. that relies on like crazy length or crazy athleticism. He's gotten to the point where he's not like a negative out there defensively, which I think is really important for the Blazers. Uh, he's not a plus at all. And, you know, if I, I would say that if we're being a hundred percent honest, there are some things that the Blazers give back in employing a Lillard McCollum backcourt. Yes. But like, it's not like he is some mess out there defensively. Like I think he's a little bit better than Dame defensively. 
Yeah, I'm with you 100%. And I think just that strength at his size, like he has decent size, and I think he has good strength. So he's going to decline a little bit defensively. All guys do when they get up in age. But I don't see him being like necessarily this albatross negative. I think he's going to age okay there. And I don't see anything in his game in that capacity that would really lead him to becoming incredibly negative. Just because, again, like you noted, his mostly his defense is based on positioning, kind of strength, using his tools. It's not like he's crazy twitcher or whatnot. But I guess my last note on this deal is you just look at the opportunity cost for CJ and the Blazers. And this is why it makes so much sense. Cause I mean, CJ's leaving about $14 million again on the table, just with this extension. If he were to resign with the Blazers starting in 2021, he's leaving about 16 million total over the first three years of that contract. So when you consider time value of money and getting money now and locking that in, there isn't a big opportunity cost for CJ and the Blazers get him at a little bit of a discount. Let's say, let's assume he gets the max eventually. So that's why I think it makes so much sense for both sides from a financial standpoint. And as we talked about last time as well with these restricted free agency potential extensions, one question that I would have for you is, do you think that CJ McCollum on a five-year, $150 million contract is an asset in terms of potential trades? Yeah, that's a great question. I think so. I, I don't think that not, if it was like a Westbrook contract and you started getting over like 40 million, that's when I would have some reservations here. Jeff Siegel of Early Bird Rights has it as flat right now. I'm not sure if he's just inputting that temporarily or not, but I don't think the contract is that much of an albatross. Like you're not looking at these balloon payments of like $45 million in 2022, for example. So I, it's something we talked about with Jalen Brown. Like maybe at the full value, you're not getting like something great in return for CJ. I think that can be argued based on his age and performance at that point in time. But I think you can easily get off of that contract. So that, that makes it more alluring to me. So yeah, for what it's worth, Jeff does have it as an estimate right now, as opposed to a, uh, like a full on deal. So I don't know. We'll see what happens with CJ. Um, yeah, I I think this is a good move though for Portland. Like that's really all I have here. They're, they're going to need their guys like Anthony Simons, Nasir Little, uh, you know, Rodney Hood to an extent as well, I think. Uh, you know, I know he has a player option for a year or two, but the fact that they will, what, will they have his bird rights? They actually might have his bird rights. I think when he, I don't think so. Well, that's, that's complex because, of course, he had the um, right of no trade. So when he waived his no trade in the deal to Portland, he sacrificed one year of that. So I have to go back and, and look at that. We both probably should off air because that's a, it's a complex situation. Yeah, that's a weird one. Um, I'll have to look that up to see if I can figure that out at yeah. some point. But like if they can resign Rodney Hood to a longer term deal and he can take a leap and they obviously have Zach Collins, they have Yusuf Nurkic, they have, uh, you know, Simons and Little and these guys. Gary Trent had a pretty good summer league as well. So that that's how they need to keep improving and winning on the margins is by hitting draft picks and hitting these guys that are uh, reasonable trade targets that they can potentially resign. Exactly right. I think that's where the key emphasis with the Blazers should be is one of these guys, they got to hit on one of these ancillary players. Somebody's got to take a jump. I'm not sure if Simons is going to be that guy on this team, just because again, we're dealing with the, the Blazers' best two players are both kind of lead guard, combo guard types. I'm not sure if you can play all three of those guys, but they need someone to, to make that leap, whether that's Zach Collins or maybe via trade. But there's got to be more around these two, but I don't think these two are obviously the issues here. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Uh, let's move on. Do you want to talk about Isaiah Joe first, or do you want to talk about uh, 
talk about 2020 free agency first. Let's do free agency, and then we can kind of end with Joe and some prospects. Yeah, that'll be fun. So let's uh, let's jump into 2020 free agency. So my overall take on this 2020 free agency class, assuming that Anthony Davis is not going to be a part of it and that he resigns with the Lakers, which seems like the most likely outcome right now, uh, this is a very, very, very weak free agency class, I think. Uh, the top-end talent is just not there, really. And the talent that is there is very, very flawed in some manner. Yeah, 100%. There's a lot of player options and like early termination options. So we have guys like Mike Conley um, that are potentially going to be available, maybe not. Tamar DeRozan, like we talked about in the last podcast. But I think that's exactly right. You look at the top-end talent here, you can argue Draymond Green is the best overall free agent in the class. Like if you assume that Anthony Davis, of course, stays with the Lakers, which maybe we shouldn't assume considering how much movement there's been with these star prospects. Anything can change, and that would certainly add to the top-end talent in the class. But I, I definitely agree. I think you know you look at the unrestricted guys, Draymond Green, Kyle Lowry. I like both of those guys. What are the odds that Draymond changes teams? Who knows? Kyle Lowry is getting up there in age. I think he can help a team, but he's not you know 27 in his prime. So, yeah, let, let's just talk briefly about Anthony Davis's situation. Uh, if he was to end up just the Lakers having a disaster year on some reason, I don't think this is going to happen. I think Anthony Davis is going to resign with the Lakers at the end of the day. But yeah. in terms of teams that will have money next year, is there a spot that like really stands out to you that you think Anthony Davis should consider beyond the Los Angeles Lakers? Man, that's a great question. I haven't really thought too much about him just because I assumed what you did is that he'd probably sign back. I'm looking over this list. I don't really see like one single destination that makes a ton of sense if he's trying to win games long term. Like if Dallas could get space and put him next to Porzingis and Luka, I think that would be awesome. But I don't know if they can finagle that. I don't know if Anthony Davis would really be on board with that. Is there a destination that makes sense for you? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, you know, Chicago, if I remember correctly, can't really get to max cap space, right? Let me pull their cap sheet up. Do you really think you would consider there? I don't like I don't know. Like, I'm just like throwing out like up and coming teams that <laughs> have a connection to Anthony Davis because like he's obviously from Chicago. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, like Zach Levine, Thaddeus Young, Sadoransky, like those guys are all up to 32 million. Uh, then you've got Kobe White, Lowry, and uh, Wendell Carter. That gets you 15 more. What, they're at, like, with Otto Porter, it depends on what Porter does. If Porter was to yes. try and opt out, they actually probably could get to max. Yeah, that's that's a good point. And I, honestly, I tend to assume, I don't really build in this too much under the calculus as far as calculating out exactly guaranteed contracts because you can always move contracts right like right. we've seen that in the past like if a team really wants to clear cap space if the bulls really want to get anthony davis and he was agreeable to going there they'd be able to create the space right like the knicks could very easily clear space for anthony davis again i don't think anthony davis is really going to consider the knicks at the end of the day um philly can't really do it i don't think portland is capable of doing it they have too much money on the books still i believe right God, that would be dope, though. Yeah, they definitely be great. Have money on like, the books. Like, their, their route to this is the Lakers falling apart by January and being, like, seven games under five hundred, and Davis being miserable and them trying to, like, make a godfather offer involving all of their prospects. Yeah, and I also think another one we should list is just another fallback option that we talked about on the podcast last week 
is I don't think this would ever happen because I don't think the, the Lakers would deal with this team. But if things go bad, you have the Warriors, you have D'Angelo Russell. Like I, I'm just saying, like that might yeah. be something that they look at and as a as a <laughs> completely worst case scenario if the wheels really fall off, which, which is the scenario we're discussing, right? Like I, I don't think Anthony Davis has become available unless things go really bad in LA. But that's just kind of a fallback option that would be. I mean, can you imagine the Warriors kind of like the long term game if that were to happen? That'd be incredible. I think that the Lakers would never do that if only because then they would run the risk of LeBron James declining his player option in 2021 because I don't think he would want to be there for a team that would have no chance of competing for a title. Yeah, no, no, I I don't think it's like going to happen. I don't think it's realistic, but I I just going to throw it out there because I do think the Warriors are kind of sneaky with that Russell contract and what they can do. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Um, Overall, though, I don't really see a world where Anthony Davis is gonna leave los angeles like i I just don't i don't see it i agree honest at the end of the day like there's just not uh if the timberwolves could somehow get off of like andrew wiggins's deal and get zero dollars back him and carl towns is at least intriguing but i I don't see him wanting to go to minnesota just because we haven't seen any big free agents really decide hey minnesota is the spot i want to be so this is all kind of a futile conversation at the end of the day let's uh let's move on and talk about some of these player option guys to me there are three that particularly stand out as high-end like all-star level players Mike Conley, to me, is probably the most interesting. His uh, his deal with Utah now is substantial. He would need to pass up a player option that would be worth, uh, what is it? It's uh, $34.5 million. My guess is that the world where he declines that is he signs a deal like Al Horford did this summer, where it's like three additional years plus like 28 to 30 million dollars on top of it just to like guarantee himself more money that doesn't sound like an impossible circumstance to me though do you no it's not impossible it depends on how many additional years he's getting because we, we've reached the point where this is going to be mike conley's last bigger contract and i have some reservations because he's going to be 32 in this season had some injury concerns this is something where i want to take a wait and see approach as and i think they'll do that and it'll kind of work itself out like if conley has a big year he stays healthy I could see him, you know, not exercising that early or exercising the early termination option and becoming a free and then agreeing to a longer term deal with the Jazz, sacrificing some money per year, maybe getting like that second or that third year, especially contract that you couldn't get likely long term um, if you signed a shorter deal, if that makes sense. So I think that Conley is another one of these guards that uh, will age and has aged really, really well uh, because he has become just an elite off-ball shooter as well as just a terrific shooter in general. But his level of IQ, his intelligence defensively and his ability to shoot, I think does lend itself to aging gracefully. Yes, I agree with that. I think these those guys where the IQ, the skill and the shooting is going to age well. I'm more concerned. I'm not really concerned about him as a player. I'm more concerned about him relative to his contract. Just if it gets a little bit too inflated, like thirty-four and a half million is getting on the higher end. Of course, like you, you want to see that drop below thirty. I think if like a, a three-year extension with some annual salary under thirty million, I think that would be most agreeable. I, I don't know, maybe like the Lowry deal is like a template, but maybe even less because he's going to be a little bit older than Lowry at that time. So I like the player. I think he's going to be good throughout this contract, even if he signs a second contract. Um, you know, declining his team option or his player option or whatnot I, I just again i think the money is what i'm most concerned about here yeah it declines and gets like a 390 or something like that i think that makes sense if he does but uh 
you know, honestly, I think it's hard to pass up 34 million in a single year in terms of a player option. It really is. <laughs> you know, uh, we saw we saw Horford do it this year. So, uh, and Conley is Conley is in many ways the guard version of Al Horford. I think now that he's back on a good team again, I think we're going to remember just how fucking excellent Mike Conley is at just affecting every facet of the game. Yeah, I really love him as a player. And we have to also take into account that Utah did trade assets for him. So that's going to give him some leverage potentially, especially if he can stay healthy this year to work out a longer term deal. So regardless of what happens, I, I think this is going to be a great fit on Utah. It, for me, it's, it's a purely financial issue. If you get locked in too much, at too high a figure, I could see that being damaging long term with Conley's injury history. But obviously, I hope it works out. Conley's a great player. So I'm going to pair both of the San Antonio guys together here. LaMarcus Aldridge has a non-guaranteed $24 million in 2021. That's an awesome deal for LaMarcus Aldridge. The only way that I can envision San Antonio declining that is if DeRozan declines his and they end up feeling really good about a super, super high-level free agent. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. In many ways, those two work in concert here as kind of the older guard on this team. And you have some younger players, of course, with Murray, uh, Derek White, or a little bit different timelines, even though White is a little bit older. But Aldrich has $7 million of that guaranteed, um, of that 24. And it's the guaranteed date is early. It's at 629. So we should kind of figure out in concert what both him and DeRozan are doing at the same time. And I think that's a great point. For the Spurs, as far as you look at it, if you know DeRozan opts out and he wants to go elsewhere, maybe you you look at Aldridge and say we should probably look to rebuild again. Though I think I would just I wouldn't waive him. You'd try to trade him in that instance, right? Because I think you can get something for him at twenty four million. That's not such an albatross contract for him on an expiring. Well, the the only way that I think you waive him is if you're getting a free agent that is better than what you would receive on the trade market, right? So like if so, we mentioned Demonis Sabonis on the last podcast is like, you know what? Like he seems very Spursy. Like, I don't know if they do better than getting Demonis Sabonis, right? Like, you know, yeah, the Marcus I, Aldridge trade, they probably don't do better than that. That's really tough. I, I have no idea what Aldridge's market would look like even. I don't know how he's perceived anymore, but I, I think that's probably a fair point to say, like, you're probably not getting better than him. Of course, I mean, you could probably get Sabonis and have Aldridge, but I think your point is well taken as far as what you're looking to get in a potential trade versus what you can reasonably get on the open market. Yeah, they'd have to really maneuver salaries around. Like, they would have to do, they'd have to, like, send picks to get off of Patty Mills, probably. They would have to get off Rudy Gay's $14.5 million that's guaranteed now for 2021. Like they, they would have to do a lot of work to pair those two. Um, the reason I brought up Sabonis is because if they do decide to exercise that uh, non-guarantee on Aldridge, they can get up to a good like $30 million in cap space. They can, and of course, it depends on what DeMar DeRozan does. If he opts out and leaves, they're going to have some extra space. Right now, they only have about $45.7 million guaranteed that I'm looking at. But of course, you have to factor in cap holds. Like DeJounte Murray, they're going to keep that on the books, of course. And some of these other ones, maybe Brent Forrest. But those guys are more secondary. I think they can actually get to a pretty damn good amount of space, even with Aldridge. It's going to come down to how they want to allocate the resources. And then DeMar DeRozan is the big one here right because he has a 27.7 million dollar option my bet is he declines that i don't know why i say that like it just feels like a circumstance where he's going to feel like he can go out on the open market maybe he doesn't get 27 a year but 
I think there might be a team that pays him 27 a year. Yeah, I do. I, I actually think he's going to decline it as well. He's going to turn 30 actually in about five days. And I think this is one of those situations where this is his last big contract. So I think he's going to try to get out in the open market and get more years. And I think that's important for him. Like if he plays the season out at 27, I mean, that's a really good number for him. I'm not sure if he gets quite that much as far as a yearly value. Maybe he does. I have no idea how this offseason is going to work out. But I think this is a, a clear argument for this is going to be my last big contract. Let me get out in the open market as young as possible, especially if I'm healthy, and try to secure that. What did we think of DeMar DeRozan last year, the first year in San Antonio? I I actually thought he was really good. Uh, 21 points per game, six rebounds, six assists. Like the passing stuff that DeMar has shown over the course of the years in Toronto that you and I have talked about, like I've always thought that it was pretty underrated. Uh, I've always really liked him as a passer. He really started to showcase that more and more in San Antonio. And I really liked his offensive season quite a bit, despite the fact that like he barely (laughs) shot threes at all. Like he totally excised the three from his game. That's the most fascinating part to me. He took 45 threes last season, which is just ridiculous. He made seven threes. So San Antonio was basically like, we're going to optimize your your strengths. We're going to let you get to these mid range shots. And Ben Taylor actually made a video about this, about the mid-range being dead or whatnot. And he, he featured DeMar DeRozan in this and just the different elements and the different ways that DeRozan can apply pressure to a defense that doesn't absolutely have to strain you as far as stretching to three. Like he does provide that intermediate area threat um, and that can have reciprocal effects or like it can play out with the rest of your team. So I thought that was really interesting. And it's just kind of interesting to me overall that the Spurs basically were like, okay, you don't like to shoot threes. We're not going to make you shoot threes. We're going to build this into our offense. So it ended up actually being a pretty good um, offensive fit, I think, which is kind of a lot of people might not have expected that. Yeah, no, I I thought it was really, really good. Uh, Defensively, he's still kind of a mess. And they, for the first time in a long time, were kind of a mess on defense. Like, they still finished 19th overall in defensive rating. So that's not like a disaster. But by Popovich standards, that is a disaster. I think that he's been there for, it's something like 22 years. And in 18 of the 22 years, they've been in the top like six defensively. Uh, So... The fact that they were that bad last year says a lot. And I do think that a big part of it was adding DeMar, losing uh, Danny Green and Kawhi Leonard, obviously. And then, you know, LaMarcus didn't have a great defensive year. He was solid and stout, but not awesome. Losing DeJounte Murray also hurt them as well. Getting better point of attack defense will certainly help them because DeJounte Murray and Derek White probably have a case as the best defensive backcourt in the NBA. Uh, Them and I think that the Clippers, whenever they want to fully engage with like Beverly, Kawhi, and Paul George can probably make a case as well. But uh, this is a team that needs to figure itself out a little bit defensively, but also uh, just wasn't very good there last year. Like I think it has potential to figure itself out, but it just wasn't very good. Yeah, I think the defense is what concerns me a lot with DeRozan, um, but also playoff performance. And I thought he was actually a little bit better than give him credit for. It was a pretty good matchup against the Nuggets last year. I mean, they ended up moving Torrey Craig onto him, and Torrey Craig has that bigger body. But, I mean, DeRozan was still reasonably efficient. I mean, he was, you know, 20 point, 22 points a game, you know, six rebounds, um, like five assists. Like, he scored okay with 
considering that he never shoots threes. So my overall objection to him is like, is he really going to be a focal point on a very good, like winning multi-playoff series guy? That's always been my case. And of course he got there with the Raptors. You can give some of that attribution to the East and like the standing of that at the time. I think he's a good player. I, I just think that the pushback on him, some of it is justified as far as, is this the kind of efficient score? Does he take the right kind of shots to be one of those, like your top one or two scores on a great team? I think that that question mark still exists, but this is a guy who can score and he, he does have strengths. And I think those strengths are going to be alluring to at least some teams. Okay. So who would be his best, uh, like partner, basically? Like if you're, if you're trying to create a circumstance where you're optimizing DeMar DeRozan, <laughs> Uh, and pairing him next to a star because I think we agree that like the number two maybe even potentially like on a great team the number three role is probably where he needs to be right so like what what star do we think makes the most sense like I, I don't know that I would love the Dallas fit but I think Dallas is at least intriguing because of Luca's uh, ability to take pull up threes as well as Kristaps' ability to just space from distance. Like, those guys all together, I feel like, can make for an interesting pairing. But I don't know that I would want to cap Dallas by giving them DeMar either. Yeah, I. that's the thing about DeMar that you have to weigh is this guy is going to have the usage of one of your two top scores. Like, that's just going to happen. He, you have to feature him on the ball because he has no gravity off the ball as far as his floor spacing. So what team is really going to give him that usage and be able to get away with it? That's kind of where I look at it from. And like, from a, a fit standpoint, his fit with Kyle Lowry was incredible. And obviously Lowry's right. not like what you think of a star, but Lowry's one of the best off-ball players in the NBA. Probably one of the, I mean, Steph is the best off-ball player in the NBA, but Lowry's like top five to me. And that was a great fit. So I'm looking at other teams that can really mimic that. And I don't see a lot of potential candidates. Like, you're, of course, you're not going to pair him next to LeBron with the Lakers. Like, you want LeBron to have the ball with the Clippers. Like, in theory, with the Clippers, I, I would never want to take the ball out of, like, Kawhi's and Paul George's hands, even though they can play off of it. And from that standpoint, they'd be a deadly fit together. I just don't see a lot of these teams. Like, with Denver, you're not going to take the ball out of Jokic or Murray's hands. you got to have that optimal spacing. you just got to find a team, really, that needs that kind of <laughs> scoring punch. And it's really tough. <laughs> I don't hate the idea of Denver. It's the not more terrible. I, the more I think about it, the more I really don't hate it, actually. Because they really don't have that half-court kind of go-to score so, from the perimeter. Yeah, yes. they kind of need that guy. Yeah, I mean, it's a good point. I don't think they're going to do it, again, because they're so about cohesion and like the, the ball movement. Like Jokic knows everybody's tendencies. But as far as a fit standpoint and like what they need on their team, they kind of do need that guy who can just get you a basket in the half-court. Yeah, and they're probably not going to have any cap space next summer. Like, they need to figure out what they're going to do with Millsap and Mason Plumlee, obviously. Like, I can't imagine them having Plumlee's money on the books next year. But I can see a world where maybe Denver is interesting here for him. It's one of his better fits, honestly. If they're willing to go that route. I mean, these, this team doesn't have cap space either, but the Sixers definitely need a half-court score, but you can't play him next to Ben Simmons. Like, it, you just can't right. do it. Like, one of those guys needs the ball. So, like, that's the problem with DeRozan in a shell right there is, like, you, you got to give him the ball, but what team is going to be willing to do that? What high echelon team is he going to be one of the two best perimeter options for you? Like, again, like, the Rockets, for example, they love stars, and that's not going to happen. This is just another example of that. Like, you're not going to take the ball out of James Harden's hands and give it to DeMar DeRozan. Man, but Jamal Murray and Gary Harris are both really, really good off-ball <laughs> players. Nikola Jokic yes. is just, like, 
Damar is like kind of an underrated cutter at times. Like you could see him like meshing pretty well with Nikola Jokic as like a cutter, uh, diving from the corner and you know playing off of like that Iverson cut to like get to the other side of the court. Like I kind of dig the Denver fit the more I think about it because like all those guys can shoot too. Um, I'm intrigued by that. Yeah, I'm very very intrigued by that. And I would say my last team, just I'm not sure if this is a great fit, but I could just see them getting potentially involved as the Pistons, depending on what happens with yeah. Drummond, if he opts out. You could see them wanting to pair someone with Blake Griffin. That's not like a, a terrible fit, honestly, because Blake can play as the role man. Uh, you, you have some skill diversity there. So that's just a team to watch that I think maybe would have some aligning viewpoints as far as where they are right now as a roster, competing with Blake and him being the guy and then pairing him with somebody else who's like more of an entrenched, like high-level scorer. They need perimeter shot creation uh, to a great extent. So Detroit actually can have cap space pretty easily next year if yep. Drummond ends up opting out. That is an interesting landing spot to me for like a DeRozan-Lowry repairing. That's really fascinating. I would love to see Lowry play off of Blake Griffin. I, I would watch. I would definitely watch the Pistons for the first time in like seven years consistently if that was the case. Yeah, like there is a non-zero chance that that is like plausible, and it's like one of the few places that I think it is plausible. Yeah, that's why I brought the Pistons up because I think we talked about a lot of options that pr- pretty much aren't reasonably <laughs> like they're not reasonable options and not reasonable destinations. I think the Pistons actually is kind of reasonable. So let's move on to the Pistons and talk about Andre Drummond. Drummond is a $28.6 million player option. I think he should probably pick that up, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, the big market, that's always, you always have reservations about that from the player side, just because how many realistic fits are there going to be? But like, again, you might look at a team like the Hawks who need like, if they could use Drummond as like a rim roll, like he'd be terrifying with Trey Young as far as setting screens and diving to the rim and the Hawks have cap space. So it only takes one team like that to pay Drummond long term. But you got to have a pretty good feel about what your market is for a big. It's fascinating to try and figure out what Drummond's market is and how valuable people think he is. Like, we're talking about a guy who averaged like 17 and 16 last year and then has shown the ability to run like interesting dribble handoff stuff like he did in 2017-18 before Blake got there and like kind of initiate a little bit from uh, the high post. And then uh, we've seen him also improve a little bit as a free throw shooter. He's not like a total disaster there anymore the thing with him is he needs to get back to the point and maybe this is just a function of the pistons and their offense being kind of a mess but like maybe if you put him in atlanta in a place like that his finishing ability would go up but like he is a guy that does not finish as well as what you need him to finish at around the basket well, you don't want him running post-ups. That's the thing with me is you want him as, as a straight rim roller. You want him as a, a vertical spacer. You don't want to waste those post-up possessions. That's something that he has demanded, especially early in his career. Like, he wanted to be featured kind of like Dwight Howard was. And th- there was, like, the same qualm there. Like, Dwight Howard wanted the ball in the post. And that's just not efficient basketball in the modern game unless you just have incredible touch. Like, if you're Aiton, for example, like, you can get away with running guys in the post like that. But Drummond isn't that same caliber of player. So I'd want him in more of, like, a spread pick and roll kind of a rim pressure guy and if he's not willing to do that um, my interest in him would lessen but this is something we talked about in the last podcast something that you bring about consistently it's about it's about his production and i don't think that drummond is like a very like 
high impact player as far as how he plays. Like I don't think you see that impact yeah. with his stats play out on the floor. I don't want to say he's an empty calorie guy. He, he certainly does certain things on the floor that are valuable, but I don't think he is a max player as far as impact. But the, the production and the age, he's going to be 26 years old in free agency if he opts out next year. Like That combined with averaging like 17 and 15, 17 and 16 or whatnot, we can't pretend like that's not going to have some allure to some teams. Can I also say too, he got better defensively. Like he is not a bad defender anymore. Like he is I don't know that I would go as far as to say like a legitimately good defender, but he's around the basket at least, he is no longer a bad defender. He's actually like I would say somewhat to slightly above average now. Um He's still like a huge question mark away from the basket and there are going to be teams that can play him off the court, but he is improved there. Like, I think it's, I just think it's worth giving him credit for not like just failing on that end, because I think that early in his career, there was a real potential of that happening. And it hasn't happened. He has genuinely tried to get better. Yeah, I definitely agree. He's more in the range of like passable defensively from the five. And that for me, that's just not good enough. If you're going to pay this guy max money and that's a different conversation. Sure. Exactly. That's my problem with him is like if he's going to be one of your three highest paid players on your team, if you're going to be and this is a, a, a cap environment where it's moving more towards a two star. But let's say for this for the point of this conversation, we, we include him as one of the three stars being paid that way. Like how what's your ceiling as a team? And he does have some crippling limitations. Like we saw that against the Bucks, and the Bucks obviously clearly overmatched the Pistons in the playoffs last year. But Drummond can't space the floor at all. He's a guy who has to roll. He has to score in the interior. And you see a scheme like the Bucks where it's over and drop. They just put Brooke Lopez in front of the rim. It's like go ahead, finish these runners. We're not going to give you these you know dive attempts. We're not going to give you these lobs. What can you really do to make us pay? Because Drummond can't provide that point of attack pressure with his pick and pop ability we talk all the time about the ability to shoot over like above the break threes like Drummond can't do that he tried to shoot I don't think it's going to work his mechanics are just not suitable to shooting threes credibly no one's ever going to respect him out there and that's important as well so there are some pretty crippling limitations but this guy does have strengths on the basketball floor I'm, I'm most curious to see how his rebounding is perceived because we have these stats now that are more you know team-based rebounds that give guys like Robin Lopez more credit for boxing out and that having an effect on the play like Drummond finished just rebounds incredibly well, high points. But do his teams traditionally rebound better with him on the floor to the level that you'd think, like looking at his stats? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of funny that you bring that up because you look at what Detroit did last year in terms of defensive rebounding on the court. They were better by 2% in terms of defensive rebounding off the court or when he was off the court. Uh, obviously, his, his offensive rebounding is always going to make his team a better rebounding team when he's on the floor because he's a legit like offensive rebounding offense by himself. Uh, The, the defensive stuff I think is interesting because he does occasionally take himself a bit out of position, I think, but he is, he's a fascinating player. Like if you're Atlanta, you have what Atlanta is going to have like 70 million, right? Something like that to spend. Yep. Are you willing to pay him 30 million of that? Ah, that's really tough just because, again, let's assume they're going to pay Collins because I think all indications are they're going to do that. 
And can you have a team? Because Trey Young is getting max. We already have five guys in the 2018 draft that are getting max contracts if, if he stays healthy. Can you right. have a competitive team with Trey, Collins, and Drummond as your fixtures? You know what I mean? But you can also look at it as from a short-term standpoint and say, like, he's going to improve Trey and Collins in the short term as far as his rim running, having a guy who can consistently play the five. Maybe you give him a three-year contract or something like that, and he's not really aligning with your super competitive window because Trey's going to take a little bit to get to that you know, high, high-end place if he gets there. You know what I mean? So maybe that's how you talk yourself into it oh man i think that i probably would what because a deal starting at 25 million for drummond you have to i think you have to pay him 30 to get him i really like i think there's going to be teams out there that are willing to or he's gonna test the mark or like he'll just be happy entering the market at 27 as opposed to 26 right yeah man if you're atlanta can you really pay someone Four years, 125 million. When you're not sure if he can be a positive defender, no. <laughs> That's kind of where I'm at. It's like the fit long term. If we're trying to compete, like I don't think that he's a good fit on Atlanta. I think you need much more specific tailored personnel to trace weaknesses because he has strengths, but you have to cover him up. And especially if you pay Collins too, I don't think that him and Drummond are tenable defensively along with Trey. That's just, you're giving up too much in the water, but that's long-term. Like I think maybe you can talk yourself into like a reasonable two year, two plus one or something potentially, but then is Drummond going to take that? That's where the, the interests don't really align potentially. Andre Drummond, you'd have to max him at a two plus one. And you'd have to go like three, what would that be? Three, 110 something like that something around that range and that guy that's pricey <laughs> but i don't know what he'll be a he'll be a seven to five year veteran at that stage that means the deal's gonna start at like 35 or so so 35 400 if i remember correctly um so yeah it'd be three years 111 that seems exactly like right. a lot it does it really does. But like, well, you have to look at it. Maybe you look at it from... I'm just trying to see different viewpoints as far as how Travis Schlenk could view this and say, you know, we're trying to make the playoffs now. We think that this player can help us. Because I think that Drummond could help them as a floor raiser. Honestly, I think, I think he might vault them like by a couple wins just because, again, having that consistent spot from the five and getting probably better defense than what they've had with their other guys because they've had pretty poor defensive players at the five for the most part. So maybe you talk yourself into that. Can I give you a hilarious team? Hit me. Charlotte. Oh, God, this is what I'm scared of. <laughs> <laughs> that would be the world's funniest signing to me. Um, oh, my God. Like, they have the money. It certainly would get worse if you went to the Hornets. Like, I, I think that's like the worst case scenario of a team just being like, this is the best player we can get. And now we're going to give ourselves even less flexibility again. Because that's been the Hornets' biggest problem is they have no maneuverability with their roster. Like, they just have, they're, they're overpaying too many guys, especially at the five spot. And you put Drummond in there, he's not going to raise your floor enough to be probably even a playoff team long term, honestly. And that's why you, you have to find a, a good fit for him. Like, again, the Hawks. I think it makes sense. I, I wouldn't commit money to him like three to four years down the road because I don't think you can honestly contend for an actual NBA title paying a player like Andre Drummond near what he's going to want. So if you're Portland, would you be willing to do something like Hassan Whiteside and Anthony Simons? Who? that's really good. That's interesting. Um, yeah. What's Drummond's contract going to be long term? Because <laughs> if you trade for a member, you give him leverage. And if you right. trade Whiteside and, and Simons, then you're like, okay, like if we're gonna, if depending what they think about Simons long term. But man, you already have Nurkic. I would just roll with Nurkic, honestly. Like I he, would too. Uh, 
Like, do you, do you think there's a discernible difference between those two players? Like, I think Drummond definitely has bigger strengths in some areas, but Nurkic also has bigger strengths in some areas. I think Drummond is better than Nurkic. I will definitely say that. I think he's a much better rebounder. Uh, that ability to create an offensive rebounding offense on his own, I think, is genuinely valuable because it allows you to maintain offensive rebounding while also playing good transition defense because you can drop four back and know that he's going to create second chance opportunities. Yeah, offensive rebounding is huge, and especially with all of the shooters, just being able to occupy the space with with the Blazers playing off Damon CJ. Not too much of a threat in a short roll situation. I mean, he's improved there with his coordination as far as dribbling. I'm not sure if I would trust him to make decisions in that respect. So that's kind of a, a negative with him. Something that Nurkic has really actually improved on. He was pretty solid at that um, starting last season before the injury. So something I, he may be entertained. I will say, I think Andre, like you saw it in that 2018 year, he has gotten better, like on the perimeter with ball in hand on those like dribble handoff, like, you know, yes. toss him the ball at the top of the key and have him hand it off to the guard or have him, you know, make a decision where he's shooting a weak side pass over to a shooter. That's, yep. he's gotten better. Like Andre has gotten a lot better. Like, I really think it's worth noting that Andre has gotten much better better at basketball than like the actual skills of basketball than he was early in his career when he was known as like just this athletic dude you know what i mean no yeah i'm glad you gave him credit for that i I definitely agree as far as especially putting the ball on the floor the coordination like some fake dribble handoffs i just don't know if i trust him at this stage like making decisions and like a high leverage playoff situation on a short roll and that's kind of what portland's downfall has been. i would never I would never do this with Portland just because I would yes. I would bet on Nurkic. I don't think the difference is big enough between him and Nurkic to pay him twice as much money. And then they have Zach Collins too. Like I would just continue to roll with that. But I'm just like throwing out like random contenders <laughs> that you could make a case if Nurkic doesn't return to his potential, uh, you know, due to the injury. Like, is there a world where this can work? You know what I mean? Yeah, it's a good point to have. And again, I think you just hit on something else in that Nurkic has a very good contract, in my opinion. Maybe not like incredible, but for what you're going to pay Drummond, you're looking at about half as much. And I think you have to factor that in considerably. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's move on to some of these other free agents here. Kyle Lowry is a guy that we've kind of tangentially talked about throughout this discussion. To me, uh, Kyle is still, I don't know, in some respects, he's underrated. In some respects, like... I think that the people who have long said he's underrated now like somewhat overrate him a little bit. He's a really, really good player. He's definitely like a top, you know, 13 guard uh, in the NBA, like top 13 point guard in the NBA. But I think we saw some drop off this year that concerned me a little bit. Yeah, I think, I mean, the pull up shooting this year wasn't nearly as good. And people forget like, Kyle Lowry had a season where he was like the second best pull-up shooter in the league for lead guards behind Steph Curry. Like he is at his peak. He was incredible. And I think that dropped off in the playoffs last year. You saw a little bit of decline in his self-creation ability. And you saw an uptick. And I think where he started getting more respect is like he's fucking brilliant at basketball. Like he had minutes in in the Warriors series where he was the smartest player on the floor. He was making all the correct decisions. He's incredibly good moving without the ball and doing a bunch of little things. That makes me think he's going to scale very well to most teams, especially if you have another initiator that can can do that consistently. I think he's going to age well because I do believe in the catch and shoot shooting, the pull-up shot. We'll see if that was kind of an aberration this season. I'm waiting to see if that is still going to be a real component to his game. That's kind of where it factors in with me. But I think he's a great player and he's He's one of those, again, shooting guards, shooting capable guards who's going to age a little bit better than he gets credit for because his game has never really been based on dynamic athleticism. Like He does have first step. He does have burst. But most of his game is tailored around his IQ. So do we think that the 
Raptors keep him all year. Like, I think a lot of it depends on what the East looks like in general. But I wonder if the Raptors keep him all year because there are teams out there that could just, like, desperately use him. Like, Philadelphia, you could make a case to, like, move a lot for him, I think. Yeah, he'd be a great fit in Philadelphia. Um, depends on the, the contract matching is going to be difficult here just because Kyle Lowry makes like 36 million. So you're looking at Philadelphia and like they have no big contracts. I mean, are they yeah, going to trade Al Horford? Point. I don't think so. Like they can't, they're not trading Josh Richardson at 10 million. That's one of the best contracts in the NBA. Like I think they, may, they might consider that, but they can't even aggregate enough to get to that point. So that's the holdup for me. And like the Lakers would have to move like Kyle Kuzma plus uh, the KCP and Danny Green contracts, something like that to make the deal happen. Yeah, one team, again, we've talked about this team numerous times popping up, but Dallas is really interesting to me. They have Tim Hardaway, yeah. they have Courtney Lee. They can aggregate the salaries. Um, it's it, just a question of draft capital. They don't have a lot of draft capital. They don't have a lot of younger assets necessarily, so maybe they don't have the, the asset plays to make this happen. It kind of just comes down to what Toronto wants. Do they want to get something for him if they're not going to trade him or keep him, sorry, long-term, signing him to a contract next offseason? Maybe they settle for you know, like a, long, a young prospect or something like that, right? Yeah, I mean... They could do that. I don't know if they're going to settle for anything necessarily because I think that he will have like a fairly robust market at the end of the day. Um, I'm trying to think of like another landing spot. It is weird to try and find like really good spots for him, I think. Um, the, the best spot for me, like if we could get him to Milwaukee as their lead guard, like up. next to Giannis and Chris Middleton, Uh, Maybe you do something like Eric Bledsoe, uh, you know, plus some of these young guys that that would be the dream for me. But I I don't think Masai accepts that. Like, I think he would just rather have the cap space going forward. I think the best spot, honestly, my favorite spot for him is the Clippers. And I think you aggregate after 1215, you can aggregate Beverly, Mo Harkless, maybe Zubats to get you there. And then you have that 2020 short term first round pick. It's not going to be good, but. I think that might have some allure. And you pair Lowry next to Paul George and Kawhi Leonard. That's like freaking ideal. I know people are going to say like Beverly is the better on-ball defender. I think that Lowry is the better team defender. And he plays off of players like that. We just, I mean, we just saw that in the finals, playing off Kawhi offensively. That would be incredible to me. I'm trying to decide if I think there's a world where they would do that. (laughs) I don't know that there is. I, I I don't know that either team would do that because I think that the Raptors would rather have the cap space for 2021 um, if Masai is there because I think that they will try and make a chase at Giannis. And uh, Patrick Beverly is obviously guaranteed at $14 Like I think they'll want to keep the books clear basically as long as they can. Yeah, no, there's definitely arguments against it. I just think that it's something to at least entertain. Like if I was the Clippers, I would make that call. The biggest, we talked about the Clippers and I think they're the favorites to win the title, but their biggest bugaboo in the half court offensively is they just don't have enough ball movers. And you take arguably the best ball mover, one of the best five ball movers in the league as far as in that role. And you put Kyle Lowry next to those guys, man, I just think that's a fucking incredible fit. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I definitely agree with that. Like, I don't think Miami can really get involved unless they really wanted to throw like Tyler hero there, but maybe, I mean, you can add it up with like Drogic and then like justice Winslow and get to the money that you need. And neither of those guys are guaranteed past 2021. That's interesting to me. Yeah. No, and these players like Miami. So I think you you look at playing next to Jimmy Butler. That's actually a really nice fit for Kyle Lowry. I really like that pairing with those two. 
Yeah, I think Kyle's an interesting free agent to track. Uh, The next kind of tier for me that I have is Gallinari, Eric Gordon, Fred Van Vliet, Montrez Harrell. And then Gordon Gordon Hayward, like, I guess would fit in this tier as well. But Gordon Hayward uh, is... I can't envision a world where Gordon Hayward is not picking up $34 million. He's going to have to crush this year. He's going to have to get back to peak Gordon Hayward and really take that step recovering from injury, I think, to decline that kind of money. So it's really based on his play this year. I, right now, in, in from this vantage point, at this point in time, I have no inclination that he's going to turn that down. Yeah, like uh, that would be bizarre to me. So let's just go with uh, Gallinari, Eric Gordon, Fred Van Vliet, Montrez Harrell is my next group. Um, any of those guys stand out okay. as particularly interesting to you? I love Eric Gordon. I think he's someone who's also improved and kind of morphed his game in certain respects. Like he's a really good athlete. I think his ability to get to the rim is just really underrated. His strength level. He did awesome defensively against Donovan Mitchell in the first round last year. I thought he defended him really well. He's a really good player. He's someone that the Rockets absolutely cannot lose. Like they're already treading water. You cannot lose Eric Gordon for what he provides that team from a spacing and like a secondary creation standpoint. But I think he's a get in free agency, honestly, like he's proven more healthy of late. Like I, I would, I would pursue this guy if I was in a point where I he, he can move the needle for me. I think he's a get. Yeah, I agree with you. I think Eric is like a twenty million dollar a year player now, who's getting paid what like thirteen something like that. He might be like a twenty five million dollar a year player right now. He is really, really good, and like you said, he's good on both ends. Yeah, and he's exactly what, if you're looking to compete in the modern NBA in the playoffs, he's kind of what you're looking for as far as what you need on your team. Like, he's gotten good enough defensively where he's going to be able to hold up there. And there just aren't a lot of guys who can create for themselves space and play defense. And, like, yeah, you're right. He makes, like, $14 million this year. I think he's worth at least $6 million more than that. Yeah, and, like, with Eric, the funny thing is, too, for years he was, you know, kind of discussed as, like, the, you know, shooting guard of the future like one of the shooting guards of the future when i look at eric now i love the fact that you can play him on the ball like he can create out of a pick and roll he can kind of create his own shot and iso occasionally he's a really really good shooter obviously who knocks down just an obscene you know percentage of his shots given how many of them are contested how many of them are um you know, he takes like nine threes a game for God's sake. Like he doesn't get a ton of open ones. Um, (laughs) The defense is so interesting, but the ability to play on and off ball, I think just fits in just about every situation possible. Like he is, he's a fit for every single team in the league, I think. And that is, that is a hard guy to find now. Yeah, 100%. And I think in this tier, maybe a little bit down for me would be someone like Otto Porter. I think he's really interesting to compare with yeah. Eric Gordon just because Eric Gordon gives you more on-ball ability. I, like, I love Otto Porter as a player. I think he fits in basically any scheme, but he's not giving you the same kind of ability to get to the rim, for example, the ability to create for others. He's a good team defender, but Eric Gordon's a better on-ball defender. So there's a lot of interesting components there. And I think Otto is a, a really good team fit, but for him, the biggest argument against him is money. And that was the biggest argument on his second contract, a guy that got maxed basically based on positional scarcity, having that high pedigree as the number three pick in the draft. And just the league needs these guys. Again, not to bring up Harrison Barnes in depth, but there's a reason he's getting paid, you know, $23 million a year. I think that that's a little bit of a negative efficiency as far as, I I don't know if Otto Porter is going to be worth the contract that he gets necessarily if he opts out of this number. Like maybe he agrees long-term with the Bulls and we see a similar Barnes scenario, but I think the player is very good. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, uh... For me, I wonder if Eric becomes one of these guys that, because 
Gordon has never gotten like a crazy amount of money. Like he's gotten paid like and he's made money throughout his career. Like he's made uh he'll be up over like 100 million by the time that this deal ends. Um but I, I just like look at Eric Gordon and I wonder if uh I wonder if he tries to really cash in at this stage. He's never made more than 15 million a year and this is a chance to like really really lock in a deal that's like oh, I'm going to make $200 million in my career. <laughs> I, I could definitely see it. I, I think he's starting to get the commensurate respect with his game. Like, remember, when he came into the league, he was running a lot of pick and roll. This was like the next guy, right? And I think, didn't he get max on his second contract? But the cap was just so much lower that right. it didn't yeah, it really did. seem like an enormous payment. Yeah, so he got paid, but like it was never in a climate that really was like, holy shit, this is a balloon payment. So I kind of think he's starting to get a little bit more respect from teams, especially his performance with the Rockets. You have a you know a team that perennially competes. Like he's going to start getting more credit, and I hope he gets that in his contract. I mean, he's he's a guy I, I do think is still you know somewhat underrated. He's really impressed me again on the defensive end. I, I think that that is where he's kind of separated himself. And he is thirty; he's going to be thirty-one this free agency. But how many teams are looking for wings? So the, the there aren't a lot of guys like Eric Gordon. So does it feel like to you, Montrez Harrell gets talked about more than Andre Drummond? <laughs> it kind of does to an extent. Just a little bit, again, right? I think it's, well, you have, yeah, because you have the notable capacity of like the, the Lou Williams Harrell pick and roll. We saw that just absolutely eviscerate the Warriors. Like they just couldn't guard it. And I think that when you get featured that way and you're on a team like that, that's kind of a surprise team. You start getting more notoriety. It's just very interesting to me. Like, Harrell is maybe like half the player Drummond is. Like, he's not as good defensively. He is not as good as a rebounder. He's not as good as a scorer, in my opinion. But, but like, he gets discussed as, like, the way that he's discussed, you would think that they're in the same class of player almost to me. Yeah, and I think there, there are some arguments to make there. I, I think that Harrell offensively is a little bit more versatile like what he can do but i also think the reputation with harrow is a little bit skewed just because he's viewed as kind of this energy big and usually we associate that with more defense and he's not a good defensive player like harold's right. not a good defensive player he's actually like an offensive center which is kind of interesting to me how he's perceived that way but i mean i think the big differentiator here is I mean, harrow makes six million dollars this year you know what i mean like that's just a, that's he's incredible an incredible value. value an incredible value but like Harrell's probably like the 25th best center in the league and Drummond is definitely a top 10 center in the league. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a credible argument. I think for me, it just comes down to, again, the money gap. And right. Harrell can give you a lot of what Drummond can. He can't give you like starting full time at the five and being like an average defender. He's a negative defender. He's not. I mean, Drummond is more average, I think, when you consider the rebounding and everything like that. So there's, I, I would take Drummond in a vacuum as far as if you weren't considering contracts. But the, the allure of Harold to me is like that he doesn't have as big of a pedigree. And he probably gets paid a lot more on his next contract. Yeah, I was going to say, that's, like, that's the thing to me. Like, Montrez <laughs> is probably going to make... 15 million on this next deal yeah. something like that like 15 20 probably uh, uh maybe not maybe um, do you think i'm overestimating that like is he gonna make that much i don't know i mean again with these five with these contracts for bigs it, it just kind of takes one team and it's hard to project that in free agency but the allure for me again is the cost effectiveness if he loses that and he becomes like a 20 million dollar a year player i'm not nearly as interested like would you rather pay him or mark gasol uh, I think Marcus All for sure. I agree with you. Like I would rather pay Marcus All like two years, thirty million, than pay Montrezl Harrell four years, 
60 million or something. And I bet like, I bet you those two guys get pretty close to the same like single year number, but I'd rather just always pay the big yeah. short term. Yes. Yeah. hundred percent. I would take a soul. If those are the terms, I would definitely take a soul easily. Um, the next two guys here play for the same team at opposite kind of ends of their career. Jeremy Grant is going to be entering free agency, trying to like really cash in for the first time. Paul Millsap is coming off of a deal where he did really cash in and is now going to be re-entering the market in all likelihood. Uh, I don't really know what he gets. Like I have no idea what his deal looks like. And I don't think he's going to get it from Denver. I think they've already allocated resources to, you know, their core three guys with Jokic, Harris, Murray. They traded a pick. For Jeremy Grant, you have to assume that he's going to be back on the team. I think he's a great fit defensively next to Jokic, by the way. You have to move forward with that understanding. What is he going to get on the market? Like, as with his age, I think he's still a good player. Someone's going to age because of the IQ and the skill. But who's paying him big money? Yeah, I'm not sure anyone's paying him big money. Like, I, I think that there are interesting teams. Like, he's a fit for the Clippers with their culture, I think. Um, you could play small yes. a bunch and like run him at the five, even next to those guys. I think you could also run him at the four realistically in the same way that they're going to utilize Jermichael green this year. Um, like, I wonder if they can do like a mid-level deal for him. That's where I think Millsap's value is going to come is to a contender with like the mid-level exception. I think that right. is a really nice get for a team. And that's where he provides some value, maybe some potential surplus value in his contract. Oh, so here's a guy that, we haven't talked about that I really just missed. Uh, he's like better than certainly like Montrez Harrell, better than, uh, you know, some of these other guys. Uh, Derek Favors. Like, I would be willing to pay Derek Favors pretty real money next year for like a one or two year deal. Like, if you could give me like two years, like 18 million a year or something, like, I think that that's not a disaster deal. He's incredibly underrated, and I've been saying yeah. that for years. I loved, I loved Derek Favors' game. I'm looking at a top 20 list on a site right now, and he's not even in it. So I think that kind of just lets you know like what he is as a player. And this is a site that includes player options and all of like early terminations. And, of course, he's just a flat-out straight free agent. And I, I think he's going to provide some value. I, I do think he's still – it seems like he's been in the league for like 50 years. He's still pretty young, honestly, just because he was so young entering the league. And I, I really like him as a player. Yeah, D- Derek just turned 28. <laughs> Same. <laughs> yeah, and he's he's just so good defensively. He is a uh, really, really smart basketball player, plays really well within a team concept. Uh, obviously played a ton of the four the last couple of years just because of the situation. He's definitely a true five. He can finish around the basket with uh, ease. He has developed the shot a little bit. Like, I don't know if you want to call him a shooter necessarily, but like he can take mid-range jumpers at the very least comfortably. Um yeah, I think he's just a stud. Not not like a all star level stud, but like he's definitely a top twenty center in the NBA. I definitely agree. And there's, I mean, honestly, I would put him up against Drummond. I straight up, like I might prefer Favors, and I know that's kind of a, a hot take to some people, but I do think Favors is a better defensive player, and I think yeah. it's by a, at least a little bit of an amount. And I like what he can do offensively. I like oh, no, a little no, bit I, of the spacing. I, I would say it's by but, a very real amount that he's a better defensive player than Drummond. Like even as someone who went on about Andre's like defensive ability uh, yeah. and how he's improved there, I think Derek is considerably better because there, I, I don't, I don't think there's a world where Derek gets like totally played off the floor as a five. Yes. And that's my personal opinion. I was just coming at it more conservatively. Like you can make a case that he's only like a little bit better, but I, I think he is legitimately better on defense than someone like Drummond. I just think he's really underrated, but here's my question to you. This is where it gets kind of interesting. 
if you're the Pelicans, do you pay him long term, knowing that eventually you're probably going to need more of a stretch five next to Zion, and you just drafted Jackson Hayes? Do you pay him? Ooh, on a short term deal, maybe. Yeah, like yes. Like if if I could do like two twenty or uh, two years, like forty or something like that. And he performs this year, obviously. Like a big part of this is like he needs to perform and get back to where you and I like. I think you and I think he can probably be like a fifteen and nine guy is like a true starting center, right? Yes, with defensive impact, which is very yeah. very valuable. So like, yeah, I think that if he's a fifteen and nine guy that is playing really good defense, yeah, you tell me I can pay you two years forty million, I'd probably do that for them, even though they need they'd still need to figure it out long term. But like, I don't think either of us think Jackson Hayes is going to play like a super big impact this year. I don't even know if Jackson is going to play, play an impact next year. So for me, I would look at it and say, like, I would even pay favors like three years. I would I would go that far into the future and say, like, this is a guy, worst case scenario, he can be like a high end reserve. If Hayes is ready in year three or latter part of year two, maybe you can mix and match a little bit. But I, I actually really like this for the Pelicans. I think that they should consider doing this. So they could actually, can they extend him right now? Uh, they just traded for him, so you have to wait, correct? So, because you, yeah, maybe, yeah, well, they can yeah. do it. With, they can do it within the extend. Tr- you have to match like the extend and trade, so th- it limits the amount that he can get paid. So they can do it, but it, it just confines it a little bit. So they could, and I don't know if favors will take that. That's like the dilemma here. But maybe they, maybe they try to get that done. He's definitely extension eligible. That's interesting. Or if I was wait, them. I, I, go ahead. Like, what was his last contract that he signed? <laughs> uh, he's I, making. I, I want to say he's making like sixteen. Something like that? Yeah, but I think length. He only signed a two-year deal, right? So maybe not. He's not extension eligible. He would be based on years of service and like what he is. But didn't he he signed like a different contract that was lesser oh, years? Yeah, if yeah, I, yeah. So maybe he's not. That, that that makes sense. Yeah, Derek might not be extension eligible. That's a bummer. It is. Even though they moved, they've like we talked about it last podcast, they've kind of made it easier after year two. But I do think that off the top of my head, Faber signed like a two-year deal with Utah. And I think that's the limiting factor here. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. I think he entered free agency in 2017, or no, might have even been. Tw- I think it might have even been 2018. I think he entered yes. free agency and signed like a two year deal. So yeah, you're right. He can't extend. That's a bummer. Yeah. Um, but like one thing I will say about Jackson Hayes is this is where I just wrote that thing about like where I fucked up last year in terms of the draft, right? And one of the guys I brought up was Mitchell Robinson. These dudes that are just like flat fucking elite athletes like Mitchell Robinson and Jackson Hayes at seven foot one uh, with good length and like ridiculous fluidity. I kind of think Jackson Hayes like at least makes a small impact off the bench this year. Uh, just being a freak show athlete. Yeah, especially the pace that the Pelicans are going to play at. They're really going right. to run it down your throat because they have Zion, they have Lonzo. It's a great system fit for him. But I do think that he has, I mean, this is not that dissimilar from Mitchell Robinson. There's a lot of technical issues in both of their defenses. And Mitchell Robinson's always, yeah, and Mitchell Robinson's always been a much better rebounder. So that's kind of where I would deviate just a little bit. Like Mitchell's better at like the big man stuff. He's even better shot blocker than Hayes is as well. So, but I, I definitely get your overall point as far as these crazy athletes and Jackson is, is even more fluid than Mitchell is. He can do a little bit more as far as a ball handler and stuff. So he, he, he does have high level movement skills. I'm a little bit more conservative about projecting his defense, but you're right. I think he, you could see a, a predicament where he could be valuable in your one um, in a select role. Let's talk about Freddie ball game real quick. Fred Van Vliet. Uh, do we think he cracks 20 million next year? Oh man. 
I, I mean, considering what Rubio just got with like 17 ish, I think it's possible, man. I, I think you could see a team that would pay him to be their starting caliber point guard because he's so scalable as far as being able to fit both on and off ball. I think maybe at times he's even better off the ball, but I, I could definitely see it. Yeah, I think he's going to make some very, very real money next year. The reason we're not talking about the restricted free agents is because we did a huge breakdown on the restricted free agents last podcast. If you want to listen to that, uh, just go back to the last podcast Cole and I recorded. Um, The last couple of guys that I do want to bring up that are unrestricted, though, uh, Joe Harris, I think, is a guy that can make very real money next year. Yep, one of the best movement shooters in the league. Um, Fits a very easy role in a lot of teams, especially if you run floppy actions. Like maybe I, I think he's going to make more than like being able to take like the mid level with Philly. I think like he can make like fifteen million dollars a year on a shorter term deal potentially. It, it just kind of depends on what the years are and mix and matching that. But he has value because you can shoot the hell out of the ball. Another elite level movement shooter, Bryn Forbes. Uh, he will enter the restricted free, or the unrestricted free agency market. I am intrigued by Bryn Forbes. Like, I think that he has a chance to make, like, full mid-level money, if not more. Well, we just saw Seth Curry get 832. I think yeah. that Seth Curry is a better basketball player, but I think it's closer than you would get. You would see him. Like, if Bryn Forbes gets, like, $7 million a year from some team or some to that effect, like, that wouldn't stunt. Well, here, here is what I would say about that, though, is uh, I just went full purred happily. Um, <laughs> what I would say is that Bryn Forbes doesn't have anywhere near the injury concerns that Seth Curry does. It'd be like getting Seth Curry, except without any of like the worries that he's not going to live up to the deal. Definitely fair. Yeah, 100%. Um, uh, and I think he might resign with the Spurs also, too. I mean, it was kind of yeah. like when Patty Mills got that contract, did a lot of people see that coming? You know what I mean? Like maybe the Spurs value Bryn Forbes a little bit higher than we think, too. Right. Uh, is it worth bringing up Reggie Jackson, who had like kind of a super underrated year last year? Uh, we can go ahead. (laughs) I will say he was not terrible last year. Like you look at the lineups that they played that had him, Blake Griffin and Andre Drummond on the floor together. They were really, really good last year. And if you look at like what he actually did last year, uh, 15 points, four assists, like three rebounds. It doesn't like jump off the page and look, he's still overpaid. Like I'm not sitting here saying that him at, you know, what is he making? Like 18 million a year or something like that is an underpayment. Yes. But he is like a real starting caliber, like lower end starting caliber point guard. Like 15, 4, and 3 on damn near league average true shooting percentage, 37% from three, uh, low turnover numbers. Like he is, like he was unplayable for a couple of years there at times, like 2016 yes. or 2017 and 2018. Like he was not very good because he was dealing with the injuries. Last year, I thought he really did get a lot better. Like I thought that he got to the point where he was overpaid by like five million a year. Yeah, this is another player where the issue with me is relative to contract amount. Like, you're not getting anywhere in the NBA with Reggie Jackson as your initiator of your offense. Like, there's a reason that Blake Griffin was their initiator. He's much, much better at it, you know. But I think Reggie Jackson in the right role, like, as a third guard, ideally, I would have some interest in him. I I think there is some situations where he could really be optimized. I would be very reserved about paying him like even like 15 or 16 million dollars a year to be my starter i think that's i'm not comparing him to terry rozier exactly but that's the kind of predicament you put yourself in when you start allocating resources to a player like that reggie jackson is like way better than terry rozier's ever shown though i think like i understand what you're saying but like reggie made like 37 percent on nearly 500 three-point attempts last year uh he shot really really well from the line and has throughout his career like he can actually knock down shots at like a 
pretty high level. He's not a distributor, which is concerning, and the defense, I think, is not great. But, like, he is, he's like an, an, uh, let's call him an eight-figure player in the NBA, I think. That's fair, and definitely not the same player as Rozier, but I just think, in theory, the, the logic works the same. And it's just about the contract amount and what he's going to be taking up on your team relative to role. Like if he's going to initiate your offense consistently, that's not I mean, he couldn't really do anything against the Bucks. Like, you know what I mean? Like he was okay in that series. He was fine. Like, I don't think he was bad by any means, but he's not winning you games in that kind of setting. You know what I mean? So if he's priced that way, if he's like a 10 million a year, a guy off the bench or something, that'd be kind of interesting to me. Maybe I don't know. I think more about that, but I'm not interested in allocating a bunch of resources. And you look at the contract Rozier just made him. If I'm Reggie Jackson's agent, I'm pointing at that and saying, I want that at least that, you know what I mean? Um, well, yeah, a hundred percent, but like you and I are advocating <laughs> to pay Reggie Jackson, like what, like a four year, 40, not a four year deal, maybe like a three year, $32 million deal. Whereas Terry just got a three year, $59 million. Yes. It's all about money for me. Like there is, there's a certain point where I think Reggie Jackson can be fine. I, I just don't know if that's going to be reflected in reality. Right. Um, I don't know. Is there anyone else like Goran Dragic? Like, I want to see what he looks like this year. Uh, Definitely. Yeah. Like, I think that there's a chance he's an eight figure player in free agency. Uh, Jeff Teague is still an eight figure player in the NBA. I think, right. Oh man. I got to see him again this year. I, he, that's, this is another Reggie Jackson scenario and I'm not comparing them directly as players, but it's the same concept again about what's the market value and what is the value of Teague as again, like your primary ball handler. I, I just don't think it's very high. Yeah. It's a good question. Who would you rather have Jeff or uh, Jeff Teague or Reggie Jackson? I don't have a good answer for that right now. <laughs> I would probably <laughs> fade both. <laughs> I, I would rather have Reggie. Uh, if only because yep. he's two years younger, uh, like in terms of like paying them long term, at least. And the shooting is just somehow better for Reggie now. Like, it's funny that we've gotten to that point, but I feel more confident with Reggie as a shooter than I do Jeff Teague. Would you rather have those two or Fred Van Fleet? Fred Van Fleet. No question. Yes. It's just easier yeah, to plug them into the lineup in a variety of roles. 100%. Um, is there anyone else that stands out to you? I have a question for you. If you look at any kind of potential sleeper free agent, you can be either unrestricted or restricted. Do you have a name that jumps out to you that you think could be undervalued and you like? I always think Jay Crowder has always been undervalued. Like you look at the deal that he signed last year or uh, last time around, it was super undervalued. Yep. I feel like people have kind of gone too far uh, around the edge on him as a player. Like he is a multi-positional defender who you can trust to... (coughs) sort of knock down catch and shoot shots. Like if he's open, I feel like the ball's going to go in at least. Um, like if you're telling me that I could get him at $6 million next year, something like that, I, like I would like that. And I don't think that's impossible. Um, Noah Vonley always stands out as a potential uh, like super bargain to me. Just looking at what his uh, market was like this year. Uh, I think that it stands to reason that he could end up being diminished again next year and i think he's a like actual good basketball player i think he is like a third big man on a good team i like that i want to see a little bit more with him but i thought he had a better season than he got credit for last year mm-hmm. my guy and i agree with you on, on crowder by the way if you can get it for six million i really like that actually i think his problem in utah was he was stretched a little bit thin as kind of the guy they needed to play the small ball for as a starter i think he's more of a reserve but i think he can play in high leverage situations which is really valuable so if you can get him at you know six million i'm definitely in for that my guy is a little bit different. He's restricted. Um, it is. Well, I just completely blank. Oh, Royce O'Neal from Utah. I really yeah, like. Yeah, I like O'Neal. that. Yeah, yeah, I like that a lot. Thir- 
He's in his third year of his rookie deal. I think this is honestly something the Jazz should look at as far as extension, just because he's going into his th- third year of his deal. So when whatever is two years after when he signed that officially, I would look to extend him veteran extension, kind of like the same as Josh Richardson. Maybe you don't have to give him that full amount, obviously, but just under those parameters, I would look to lock him up because I think O'Neal looked really good defensively against the Rockets. He's one of the guys, like the secondary kind of tertiary guys, who actually makes really, really good decisions. That's why Quinn Snyder initially sought him out is because he could play in that system and make fast reads with the ball. And I thought his defense is good. It all comes down to the shooting off the catch. There's a little bit of variance there, but I really like him as a player. He's already 27. So it's not like he's super young, but if you're looking for more of like a, a lower end, like a high level rotation player, in my opinion, like maybe low level starter in very specific contexts. I like him more than some of the guys this year, like Magruder, for example. I would rather have uh, Royce O'Neal. Let me give you a couple more guys. Trevion Graham uh, was a guy that when he was in Charlotte, I actually thought was pretty interesting just as like a, you know, defender, floor spacer, three and D kind of guy. Didn't quite get as much opportunity in Brooklyn as what I was hoping for. But in Minnesota, I feel like he has a real chance to get opportunity there and be like a role player for them that is valuable. And then Derek Jones Jr. is very interesting to me as like an upside guy. If Derek Jones can figure out uh, how to best get his athleticism on the court uh, defensively and as a cutter, he is an interesting like upside play for me just because he's still only going to be 23 and if you can ever teach him to shoot that's at least like intriguing like to me i really like that i like Derek jones i want to see him like continue to mature in his game and if he can get to that level i I really do think he's a get regardless i think he's an nba player just kind of about the level and the variance of outcomes a little bit there last guy for me gotta mention him is Kenrich Williams from the Pelicans. I obviously can't be extended with a two-year contract, but I really like him as a restricted free agent. I think that he is an NBA rotation player. And he, yeah. you know, that bigger wing, like that 6'7 wing, his ball handling is a little bit underrated, I think. Like, he can dribble and make great decisions. He's a great team defender, has some size. Like, never going to be fully valued. And I think that is what allures, is alluring for me. He's, again, he's already 25. Older player, but I think he's a rotation guy. And at that wing spot, I would rather pay him what he's going to get than pay this like, incredibly inflated player price for like a higher pedigree big wing yeah i like that a lot um i liked what i saw of kata bates diop at summer league yes i wonder if he can translate that into a role in the nba this year and if he doesn't he would be like an interesting minimum flyer for me i like that yeah i was i was pretty impressed with him in summer league i didn't see like he doesn't stand out specifically in as far as my memory there but i remember being impressed yeah um he actually might be a non-guarantee though uh, to where, like, if he does play well, like, it would be a situation where Minnesota probably, like, keeps him for the third year of that deal. But if he just, like, doesn't get a chance, like, if I was an NBA team, I would give that a shot, at least. Yeah, that's why he wasn't popping up on my list, because I think he got that third year signing maybe the mid-level or something. Uh, I lied. Last guy for me, another guy that I have to mention is DeAnthony Melton. Um, I think he's good. I watched, like, 80 games of the Suns last year in the right role. I think he can be, like, a positive you know, a positive player. I think he's an incredibly good defender as far as team defense. He's not a point guard, though. That's the thing that with him is like you can't give him these initiator roles because he can't really shoot off the dribble at a high level and he can't finish in the intermediate area. But if you put, play him as more of a combo next to, you know, a bigger wing or another ball handler, I think you're going to see him vault because he actually shot really well off the catch last year. That's something that's not really talked about. Like his unguard, it was a smaller sample, but he really shot the hell out of the ball off the catch. Um, from three, it looked good. It looked he was working with um, Drew Hanlon 
his mechanics improved, but he's someone you have to put in the right position to succeed. If you run him in more of like a ball screen offense where he's the lead, you're not going to get the return on that. Can I give you one more? Like, we haven't mentioned any big guys yet. Please. Alex Len was, like, okay last year. He was. Like, he was... Like, I thought there was a chance he'd be out of the league this year. He is definitely an NBA center, I think. Yeah, relative to expectations, he really impressed me. You know, extending his range looks a little bit more reliable, shooting corner threes especially. Um, yeah. And I agree. I think someone coming into the last year, I was like, this guy's on half the way out. Like, you look at some of these centers that have... You know, you, you can kind of tell when these guys are going to you know, drop out and the league's going to move on. And I thought that could have happened with Lent. And he kind of, you know, evolved his game a little bit more. Shooting was able to play in that Hawks double high a little bit. And he just gives you really good size. Like, I wish he would finish a little bit better at times in, like, short rolls. Like, he blew some Trey Young layups that really pissed me off. But I, I think he's an NBA player, right? I think he's a backup. Yeah. Uh, if you could get him, like, $4 million a year, I, I'm actually kind of interested in that number. I'm not objecting. I think you might be able to do a little bit better in the draft or like on a minimum yeah. signing, but I'm not opposed to that. I think that it depends on the market, but I, I wouldn't hate that deal for him. I don't know. I think I think we've exhausted this, haven't we? <laughs> I don't know if we've missed anybody that we should be talking about, because again, like you noted, we talked about a lot of the restricted guys in the last podcast, so I think that's basically everything. Yeah, like, I mean, we could go, like, Courtney Lee, I think, has a chance to sign as like a you know, mini mid-level guy. And I think that would be like an exceptional deal. Like if Courtney just decides to try and chase a ring. Right. But that's like a bargain that is going to be like for a very specific type of team that will just be like very obvious. Right. Like that's not like a sleeper guy to me. I don't think, you know? Yeah. I'm with that. And I think right now on his contract, he's negative value for sure. Like if Dallas, if they want to yeah. trade for Iguodala, for example, like if they had to trade those two straight up, like I think they'd have to include an asset or multiple assets, but maybe in the right context. I didn't get to see too much of him last year. So interested to see him in more of an expansive role on the Magic or on the Mavericks this year, if he does get that rotation role. Here's a, we didn't talk about Tristan Thompson. Where are we at on Tristan Thompson, like, and his NBA career at this stage? Uh, I, I, can't, I have to say, like, I didn't watch a ton of Cavs last year. I know you did with that Colin Sexton write-up, but he's someone who, in theory, and I think from what I've seen in the glimpses, is someone who doesn't age quite as well because, again, a lot of his production is based on energy and, it, like, not high skill level and on defense. It's mostly switching. I think he's lost a step as far as containing in space, and that was really his number one calling card, right, outside of the energy on the glass. Yeah. I, I don't know. What do you, what do you think? I think that there's a world where a contender tries to trade for him next year and we'll find out more on where he is. Like he's dealt with injuries the last couple of years and I'm very interested in seeing what he would look like on a contender. Cause the last time we saw him on a contender, there was some useful, you know, like there, there was some value there if only because of the quickness. And I wonder if like, he's thinking right now I'm playing for Cleveland. I don't really give a shit. I'm having, you know, not to make light of it, but like very clearly has had his name in the tabloids and is having things going on in his personal life. Like, I just wonder if you get him to an engaged situation, he's still only 28. Like that's interesting to me. Yeah, for me, it's more of a wait and see. I just got to see him more this year and I'll watch more Cavs because they have more prospects. So I'll get a better feel on him. Yeah, and like Serge Ibaka still exists. Like Serge is still probably a eight-figure-a-year player. Yes, I think especially as a third bank. Like I would have very, I would actually be intrigued with him as a third kind of center. Like like he was used for Toronto when Gasol got there. I think that's there's going to be some matchups where he's valuable and some where he's not as much. 
If you are the Pelicans, would you rather pay Serge Ibaka or Derek Favors? Favors. I think Favors is a better player, and he's a little bit younger, and I think you're going to get more of a bang for your buck. Like I like like having a stretch big next to Zion, of course, but I don't think Serge is going to be around long enough for that to really matter that much. You know what I mean? Do we think Yvonne Fournier declines his $17 million player option? <laughs> That's a great question. I don't know. I... I I don't know how he's viewed in the league as far as like a secondary ball handler who can shoot, shoot off motion. It depends on how much teams put into like his dribble pass shoot ability. And the defense is not there. That's something that he's not going to be able to return that kind of value. What do you think he does? I would probably pick that up if I was him. Like, I think he's maybe like a $10 million a year player. I would want that like 17 million balloon payment, I think. Yeah, I think I'm with you. It depends on the market, though, and how, how a season is this year, but that's how it looks to me right now. Michael Kidd Gilchrist? Oh, boy. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, like, what does he even get paid? What do you think he... I mean, it's clearly in a reserve role. Um, maybe something like a Luke Richard Mbamute kind of contract, something in that respect, even though he's not as nearly as... not. I wouldn't say nearly, but he's not as athletic as he as Luke is. But he doesn't have the same, to that extent, injury concerns. What would you pay Kidd Gilchrist? couple million a year. Yeah, I think it's you can't really go. I mean, you can't go that high. I think he might be had for like three or four. You got to inflate it a little bit because of his age, I think, just because he's a little bit younger, but not much. He's just never going to shoot it. Like, that's the problem. Yes. If I thought there was a chance that he would shoot it, then I would get it. But I don't think he's ever going to shoot it. Yeah, like Stanley Johnson got like the biannual this year. Um, I would maybe he gets something like that. I, I, it's not going to yeah. be a lot, though. Andre Robertson, we're totally in a wait and see based off the injury. Um, Tony Snell, I can't imagine not picking up like a $12 million player option. Um, no. I don't know. I think that's I think that's uh, everyone. Like PJ Tucker is a non-guarantee guy, I think. Um, yeah, he's a partial and the, the Rockets are keeping that. There's no yeah. there's no way they don't. Uh, yeah, we don't need to go crazy on this. Let's talk about Isaiah Joe because that's more fun. <laughs> it is fun. Isaiah Joe, you just wrote a bunch of words on Isaiah Joe, so I will give you the floor. Yeah, I mean, I of course, we've talked about him on the podcast before as kind of a fun shooter type, and he really was last year. There were certain games, like he had the 16th We love Isaiah or Joe. Half, like it's, He's just so, he's, he's incredibly aesthetic to watch. Like, when you watch him shoot, he's like one of my favorite shooters, like in the last, like, five years to watch as a prospect. It's incredible, like, diversity of shot. And his volume, like ability to even take shots. Like I remember watching him against Indiana when I was watching Romeo for the first time. And like he took like two 32 foot shots basically and they airballed both. But just the audacity to take that kind of just got me watching his tape. And I watched more this summer going back because watching I've seen most of the returning guys at this point. And he's just much smarter than I think he gets credit for. Like there's he's just a very high IQ player. Um, how he defends in a team construct, the decisions that he makes. He plays very reserved offensive role, more of just like a, a gravitational off-screen guy. Situationally, will run a pick and roll. But I just don't know if he's gotten a chance to really show the full capacity of his IQ game. So that really popped for me. I watched the NIT game against Indiana, and I was just kind of blown away. Like I had this in the article. There were like 13 winning plays in that game that I don't think a lot of freshmen make. And that's kind of my intrigue with him on top of, of course, is the shooting. You look at him historically, guys who take, you know, over 10 three-point attempts per 40 minutes pace adjusted, shoot 40% for guards. There's like four of them, and two of them are Jamal Murray and Stephen Curry. So I think there's a lot of intrigue there. So I've talked to the Arkansas staff, new staff, obviously. Eric Musselman's the new coach, um, new people around. And uh, what they've told me is that 
what they didn't know about him going in was how smart he is. Like he is just one of those dudes that has like a super high IQ that like you can tell immediately just like putting them through any sort of workout. Like they, they are impressed with Isaiah Joe. And it was just like day one. Oh, this dude is, this dude just knows how to play like immediately. It's not just the shooting. It's not just the shot selection. It's not, it's not anything like that. It's just, this dude knows how to play basketball. It was the first thing that they told me. Cause I, I honestly like, yeah, like I, I just like reached out like to one of the guys as a joke. And I was like, yeah, like Isaiah, like he's, like one of the podcast's like favorites, you know, like last year, like we just loved watching him play. And he's like, yeah, dude, like this dude, like you should, he just knows what he's doing, man. Like out of the court, like it's real. Um, so yeah, I thought that was interesting. And obviously he's a ridiculous shooter. The big thing for me, and like, I think you're going to be a little bit higher on him than I am uh, already. The big thing for me is just, he needs to put on weight. Like I need to see what the frame is going to look like because he can't, play in the NBA currently based off of where he's at. 100%. And that was my biggest two swing skills. I think there's two swing skills for him. One's defense and just a lot to do with strength. Again, I think he's a very good team defender, but on the ball, gets ducked in on a lot. You can see the clear evidence of him lacking the girth, like getting moved in space as far as dislodged with chest bumps. Got to add some girth. Got to add some functional strength, which is incredibly important. And then offensively, such a limited role as far as he didn't really drive that off and he looked pretty uncomfortable to me in, in self-creation settings one-on-one when he couldn't get to his pull-up like he got to the rim he had five unassisted makes at the basket all season last year that's not like that that's really really low that's like troy daniels outlier brandon clark wingspan relative to other fours low you know what i mean so there's some stuff he's got to show he's got to improve and there's some th- things that he has to instill confidence in but i look at the baseline and it's really the iq that's really the thing that got me to move on him just watching him closely how he moves without the ball is really, really high level to me. Like, he's not like Stephen Curry, of course, where he's like always moving or Kyle Lowry, but he makes really, really smart relocations consistently. And I think he's going to be super scalable if he can defend. And I think all of this, at least a lot of this to me, is tied into the strength edition. And you saw some pictures of him this offseason. He looks a little bit more filled out. We'll kind of see how that plays out on the floor. But it's a really weak returning class to me as far as at this juncture trying to predict who is going to be like a bona fide first round talent. Like a lot of people will have Trey Jones, Tyrese Halliburton, Burton. For me, I think Jones is in that same. I mean, Joe is in that same tier. Maybe not as he's not as established, but I do think he deserves mention as like one of the premier returning candidates. Just because, again, the NBA skill, the diverse shooting, like his shooting is like some of the stuff he puts on film. You, you see, very rarely happen. Not just as far as makes right. and like getting hot from the field, but like how he can streamline his shooting. Like he doesn't even need a ball dip from NBA range. He can kind of catch on the hop, not even targeting the rim with his eyes, and just automatically raise up. And it's like a lightning quick release. Like there's like one guy in the draft last year that can do that, and that's Cam Johnson. And I look at that and say, you know, there's there's more here. Maybe we, I don't know how much we're gonna see as far as the playmaking, as far as running pick and roll. But he's smart. He can make and execute passes, and it kind of just goes to what you talked about with the Arkansas guys. And like he just knows how to play basketball. And for me, that's incredibly important, especially paired with an actual potentially sub-elite to elite NBA skill. So the guy that I had top ranked uh, whenever I went through in like April or whatever was Io DeSunmu. Okay. So Io averaged like 14 points, three assists, four rebounds or whatever last year. Um, Really, really good open floor player, good open floor passer. Uh, Athlete, 6'4", like a 6'7", 6'8", wingspan. Uh, Was better defensively than Joe, certainly, and was uh, pretty useful there, for a freshman at least, in the Big Ten. Uh, The role there would be like secondary ball handler, 
who can knock down shots off the catch. He was a really, really bad pull-up shooter. So I think you want him as more of like a secondary guy. But uh, Dasunmu is just a much better athlete than Joe. That's why I had him a little bit higher. Um, Jalen Smith at Maryland, toolsy uh, center that you can potentially project to shoot it. Uh, bouncy as well. You know, pretty good shot blocker for his size. Kind of a playmaking, like smallish ball five despite being like 610 with like a 7172 wingspan um just the way that he can make plays i think like that's kind of interesting i then had trey jones and tyrese halliburton the two guys you mentioned jordan wara is a shooter i should probably have isaiah joe ahead of jordan wara the more i think about it just because uh wara is a better like powerful athlete right now but joe just knows how to play basketball in a more tangible, cogent manner. The guy that I had next uh, was Devon Dotson, but after that is Aaron Neesmith, who is also a favorite of the Game Theory podcast. So what? how would you compare Neesmith to Isaiah Joe? I think Joe, I mean, Neesmith has the strength advantage for sure. He has the length advantage. The physical tools are there. He has some of the movement shooting, but I just think Joe's a much better overall shooter and he's a smarter player. Like I see more decisions being made by Joe that are higher level. Um, but Neesmith does have... I, who did I compare him to? I was looking at him compared to like Joe Wieskamp, right, of Iowa. And he's someone who is an incredible off-movement shooter. Like Wieskamp's numbers there were, were incredible. His freshman year, yeah. he has a, a good feel for that. But he can't do anything off the dribble. Like he can't contr- create his own shot off the bounce. Like he can't get to his pull-up. He's just really slow. And like Joe can do that. He's got that step back. And Neesmith can do that a little bit. But I haven't seen – it's not as convincing for me, him in that role. But definitely the strength is – plays a key role if he can refine that off movement shooting because we did see some high degree of difficulty shots for him some step backs threes off the dribble he was someone i was very interested in at the beginning of last year i just don't know if like the iq package is extremely high level he doesn't seem like a, a bad player as far as intelligence goes but i just want to see more from him before i move on him yeah i think that's reasonable um the next guy here uh, i wanted to ask you about a guy who's not returning to college basketball you sure. guys have at the step in Killian Hayes extremely high on your boards. Why do you have Killian Hayes high? Yeah, I mean, I can't really speak for... I haven't done my own boards. I can't speak for the exact reasoning for some of the others. I think the IQ and the ability to play pick and roll... Like I've seen enough of him to know that he yeah. has pretty good feel, can make pick and roll reads. Yeah, the pull-up isn't there yet, but very strong shooting indicators as far as free throw percentage, consistently over 80%. Uh, I think people are lowering on him, just to be fair. From what I've heard, it's going to be reflected in the rankings that we do to start the year. Um, just the dynamic ability off the dribble doesn't seem to be there as far as creating separation athletically at times, and I think that's probably what you're going to to talk about yeah for me it's athleticism plus lack of shooting um i get that the free throw percentage is like an, an interesting indicator but i really when i have watched him and i've seen him live a couple of times now um when i watch him i see a guy that is kind of stagnated as an athlete a little bit uh he's guys are starting to catch up to him he's really smart he does play with like ridiculously high iq and can run pick and rolls and can make cross corner passes already but yep. I don't know how he's going to get separation and I don't know how he's going to be able to even play the shot to get separation. Yeah, I think that's definitely fair. And I think you're going to see that reflected in the next rankings update. We're not, or I shouldn't say me because I haven't done the rankings yet, but I don't think the site is as high on him as it was perceived um, initially. So there's going to be some movement there. Just a couple quick questions for you about your ranks. So with AO compared to someone like Trey Jones, like why would you prefer the, the former over the latter? athleticism size and shooting ability see i th- i think they're 
pretty damn similar as far as shooting. Like both of them are more off-ball shooters. Like if you pr- if you project them, like I don't think either one of their pull-up games are there. And I think Trey Jones is a better defensive player. I don't think it's like I, I, like Ao has better size, but like I think Trey Jones even uses his size better. Better point of attack defender, a little bit stronger as far as core strength, and I just think he's a more intelligent player. So for me, I'm looking at like. In their role, I think we're kind of describing the same functional role as like a secondary ball handler. You have to buy Trey Jones a shot to an extent off the catch. I think there's enough there to have a little bit of optimism. I'm not even sold on AO shooting, though, as far as being high level there. So that's kind of where I see the the disconnect a little bit as far as role goes. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think IO is a better shooter off the catch than Trey is. Like, I think that it's like a tier difference in terms of okay. uh, their shooting off the catch. Uh, I actually weirdly think I trust Trey to figure out his shot off the dribble more than IO because I think the mechanics are a little bit better. Um, okay. Like IO has that like weird low kind of release that I think yes. is going to be hard to translate to shooting off the dribble. Um, but I think it's fine. Like he actually has pretty good touch shooting off the catch uh, size and athleticism in terms of positional size and athleticism. Uh, I think that's really important when we're projecting two guys that are probably going to be more secondary ball handler creators. Uh, having a guy like IO who is six, four with like a six, eight wingspan versus a guy in Trey Jones, who's like six, two with like a six, four wingspan. I think it's going to be a lot easier to figure out a way to get IO on the floor than it is to get Trey Jones on the floor. Even despite Trey's better defensive ability, Trey, you basically have to play against other point guards. Like he's a, bulldog defensively against point guards but you basically have to play him against other point guards um io i think can go up and down the lineup a little bit more and it makes it easier to get lineup versatility yeah i get that in theory i don't know if i believe it that much in actual application like i don't think i was going to be anything of a positive defender guarding like wings for example or even two guards to a, like a legitimate extent over trey jones like i think even with trey's lack of size i think he plays with he plays, plays bigger than his size and i think again yeah. like defending point guards trey is actually like legitimately good at that you know what i mean like oh I don't yeah, know yeah, yeah, yeah. I, he's a much better so i don't know if I, much much better defender yeah so i think that's where i come down from that and then quickly um on Jalen Smith, so I, you said like kind of a small ball five. To me, I look at him play, and he just lacks flexibility as an athlete. He kind of reminds me a little bit of like a smaller iteration of Miles Turner coming out. Like he just okay. had a little bit of a gate issue. Is not very flexible. What do you think about his passing? Because I think that is where, like, I think we can agree probably the shooting has a chance to be there, pick and pops off the catch. I think he has a solid enough foundation. But as far as a playmaker and like getting guys off the dribble, how do you think his offense? Um, kind of scales that way just because I don't think he's like a great defensive player by any means. Yeah, he's shown that stuff in the open floor. Uh, he's shown the ability to handle in the open floor. I think he's shown the ability to make pass- passes in the open floor at lower levels. Uh, Maryland's offense, they will put him in positions to where we'll get to see that next year and I think he'll be able to do it. Um, obviously this year they ran a ton of short roll stuff with Bruno Fernando. They ran um, some post-ups where the direct read is to make passes and kickouts like cross corner. I think that Jalen will be able to do that. And I think you'll see more of it this year. Yeah. That was, that was the point I was going to make as far as we're going to be able to see that evidence on the floor. Cause he's going to get a lot of the same usage and type of uses in theory that Bruno got last year. And Bruno definitely showed a spike in passing from year one to year two. I'm kind of interested to see in Jalen, how he develops there and athletically overall. Again, I'm just not as in just because I, I don't like the flexibility as an athlete. I think he's a little bit too stiff for me and he's a little bit too much of a, a hybrid. Like I don't see him, having no, enough skill to play the floor that's all totally reasonable i think yeah everything that you're saying is like 100 percent reasonable the problem is that this draft is just kind of a mess <laughs> so i'm like 
in part, like I'm going off of like what I've seen at lower levels and like what I've seen at lower levels, like often ends up being like a pedigree based decision um, versus like what we've seen in college. And like, for instance, someone like Xavier Tillman, like I think is really interesting. Uh, Xavier Tillman is probably a better basketball player than Jalen Smith right now, despite the fact that he's shorter by two inches. He's longer, uh, much better defender. He's pretty good in space defensively. Uh, really, really good uh, rim protector. The questions that I have there are just going to be the shot and the offensive skill set. Like, and I think I've seen Jalen show a little bit more in terms of the shot and the offensive skill set. Um, how much Tillman have you watched? Uh, a good amount. Um, I, I'm not quite as sold in his space defense. I, I agree with you. I think it's a little underrated, but I don't know if I buy it as far as like on an island. Like he does have some slow yeah. hip drops. He's not like a bursty, like bouncy athlete. He's more of like a really smart player. I worry a little bit about his weight. He's already cut a lot of weight, and I'm not sure how much physical development is going to be there as far as improving his athleticism. But very, very good basketball player. He's another guy who really understands feel. Is incredibly productive. Like if you look at his production, it like he shows up on lists with like Brandon Clark kind of players with, with in certain respects. So I, I don't quite buy the defense in space. And I think, like you said, I don't know if the skill level is as high enough, even though he is kind of coordinated, honestly. Like, he can put the ball on the right. floor and actually like lay the ball in. So there's something to work with. He's going to be someone that I fixate on a lot this year. Yeah, like he's dropped like 25 pounds or so, probably, like over the course of his yes. time at Michigan State. I wonder if like he can drop just like 10 pounds more and really become like a good space defender. You know what I mean? Like, we'll see, he, though. I, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, if he, if he does that, then I think that he you can consider him as, like, a top 40 guy. Like, I, he's that good at basketball. If he can really get that space element, to me, he becomes a get. And I think that it, this goes back to your point that you made. This is a very uncertain returning class. Like, we don't know. This can go a lot of different directions here. I don't have any strong takes. Like, people are like, oh, you think Isaiah Joe's, like, this elite prospect? I'm like, no. I just look at the rest of the class, and I'm looking for what these guys can do on an NBA level. And there's some interest, but there's also some wide variety of outcomes. Like, we don't even know if Trey Jones can run an offense yet. Like, we're going to find out this year. This, that's, that's the case with a lot of these guys. Yeah, like, I have Kira Lewis, like, reasonably high because I think he's going to put up numbers and I think he's going to uh, run Alabama's, like, up-tempo offense with Nate Oates really, really well. And uh, he was excellent last year as, like, an underage freshman who literally was not even eligible for the draft this year. I mean, if you told me he is not capable of coming out this year, I would not be surprised by any stretch. Yeah, he's definitely fast in transition. The games I watched of his last year, he looked like he was 17, like against Kentucky. Yeah. That game alone probably was like, scouts were like, no, he's not ready. And he wasn't ready. I think he was like the second youngest guy behind someone who played for Pepperdine. So it, you can see the, the age. And I'm very curious to see. I, I agree. With you. I think he's going to look really good in, in NATO's fast up tempo system. You saw him like even his burst and transition is very good. Like his upper end speed, he can really apply pressure. I worry a little bit about the change of direction stuff and like the change of speeds. I didn't see as much of that last year, but he's someone that I have to watch a lot more of. I don't know. Is there anyone else in this class you want to talk about? We're going to do it a ton, I'm sure, before the draft or before uh, the season starts. But, you know, is there anyone else that like stands out to you as interesting right now? I'll just throw some names at you, some underrated guys that we've talked about off the podcast. Like Drew Smith is someone who a lot of people like his sophomore stats, like steal rate, block rate, um, decision making. He is elite touch. That's, I've watched like five games of his now. I watched his first game as a freshman against Donovan Mitchell. I was like punching myself in the face during that game. Like looking at Mitchell, I was like, how the fuck did I not see this? Like it, it's so obvious in a vacuum. But uh, Juice Smith is someone who's going to have a lot of fans, especially in the quote unquote analytics community. Six three guard, really strong, um, very good decision maker. Again, I think he's a really really good shooter. And you're going to see that play out at Missouri. What are your thoughts on him? I, I think we both agree that like we just have to see it against NBA or NBA SEC athletes. Yeah, that's my big thing. Like I want to see what he looks like against the SEC. Um, the uh, Missouri Valley is not a particularly athletic league. He played at Evansville before transferring. Um, 
I want to see what he looks like in the SEC. That's kind of where I'm most interested in. 100%. I'm with you on there. That's just someone for the listeners to monitor, kind of an under-the-radar guy that you're going to hear talked about a lot this year. Two more guys, um, Aaron Henry and you know Aaron Wheeler. Two uh, guys. That's I, I literally almost just asked you about Aaron Henry. <laughs> so, so take it away. So Aaron Henry, I think, has a chance to be like a two-and-done, like this is his year. Uh, I wish he was a little bit taller. He is like yes. a 6'6", like combo forward with not like super elite length, but I think he's really going to shoot it. I think he's an awesome athlete. And uh, at Michigan State, like he's obviously going to really have to defend or else Izzo will scream at him on the floor again at some point. <laughs> so like, I think he'll do all of that. And I think that he's got a real shot to be like one of those blooming first round picks at the end of the year. Yeah, I'm 100% with you. I totally agree on the size. Like, if he was 6'8", he'd be like a top 20 guy for me right now. And just like I know yeah. it's ahead of the curve, and you have to see certain developments. But if he was that, that caliber size, I think his skill level is underrated. His dribbling, his passing is underrated. His shooting as well, I, I buy to an extent. You know, he can hit some pull-ups, and you, you believe it enough off the catch. And defensively, I don't think he's great, but I, it, it, if he was a bigger player i think i would buy in more just because you watch him play against Jarrett culver and culver like dwarfed him at like six six and three quarters like he made aaron henry look like he was more six five and that's kind of my worry a little bit with him uh aaron wheeler another guy who kind of a tools we talked about him off the air tools kind of shot flashes not a high skill level but when you look at a guy who's six nine that can move like him some backline defense i think he's someone to watch if he can really shoot the ball yeah, he's like a 2021 guy for me, even. Like, he's not yes. even like a 2020 guy. Uh, th- there is still so much skill development to go there that I'm just not sure I see it yet. Um, like, not that I don't see the flashes. Like, I do think that, like, 6'8", long arms, potential to shoot it, um, pretty good feel defensively. It's a really interesting, like, skill base for a tool package, but I'm still like, oh, wow, there's so much glue that needs to like work its way into his game that there's going to be some time still. A lot of development needed there. I lied. One more guy really quick for Houston. Dejan um kind of a guy who's going to generate a lot yeah. of buzz this year. It's like a 6'5 point guard who can make reads, high turnover rate, but uh, there are some shooting flashes, even though it's not reflected on the numbers, but I think it's kind of interesting. Yeah, super turnovers. Like He needs to shoot it and figure out the turnovers before I start to go wild. Um, Derek Alston at Boise State. Have we talked about him at all? We have not. I, I did end up watching him, so I have some takes. So I uh, I am intrigued because he's 6'9 and has super long arms and has really, really good handle. His dad was an NBA player. Um, averaged like 17 points in his last 19 games for Boise State. Uh, does need to really become a shooter and really needs to work on the frame. He's super, super skinny at 6'9. But there are a lot of tools there that are really interesting, I think. Tools, the ability to shoot the ball. I think he showed that last year. Uh, it, maybe not super pers- persuasively, but enough to like bet on. I think it's you can be optimistic there. High release point with those long arms. I do think his shot can be bothered. Not like the fastest release from what I've seen, but I, I do buy the shot. I worry a little bit about the movement skills, especially defensively. Like a lot of in space, like yeah. he's just a really stiff athlete right now. He hasn't really yeah. grown into that explosion, so he gets beat a lot. Of course, Boise plays that zone, kind of mixes and matches that. So I don't have a great read on his defense, but from an athlete standpoint i'm not totally in you're right about the strength and like his stats if you look it up comparably like you'll see in the same defensive events generated as someone like steve novak or something which is a little concerning but uh he's definitely someone to watch he should be he should be on people's radars for sure all right uh anyone else (laughs) 
I think that's good for me. I'll just list out my top five right now. Not that it matters. Um, Killian Tilly is in my top five still. I know the injuries, but like that dude to me, if he's right medically, is an NBA player. He's kind of a hybrid, but he finds a role. I believe in his IQ, his, sh- his shooting ability, his pick and pop ability. He's he's still there for me in this class. I have Trey Jones, yeah. Isaiah uh, Isaiah Joe, Tyrese Halliburton, and then Aaron Henry along with Killian Tilly. Yeah, I, I have Tilly in the first round right now as well. Uh, I, I would yep. love to see Tilly just come in and ball out. Um, all right, let's uh, let's get to reviews. We got a good one here. We got a <laughs> we got a real good one. Uh, Zion killing him, son. What a what a name. Uh, okay. Drunk on insight is the title. My game theory drinking game. Drink every time Cole says range of outcomes. Drink every oh time someone says opportunity cost. Oh, God. Drink every five minutes. Uh, drink every time five minutes are spent talking about a fringe G League prospect with an unpronounceable name. Good Lord. Uh, drink every time Brandon Clark is mentioned. This person is blacked out already. Oh, uh, drink Jesus. every time. Drink every time Dieter mentions the Warriors' bla- bad locker room dynamics. Drink every not, every time nine to 14 days go by between podcasts, followed by another podcast coming out only two days later. Hey, hey, <laughs> we're, we're not getting better at that. That's just totally reasonable and applicable. Uh, drink every time Sam Vecini bursts your eardrums with his hello and welcome to the Game Theory podcast to start an episode. Drink every time you imagine that it's Sam breathing heavily in the opening music. Drink every time Sam transitions to a new subject by saying that's fair about something he clearly does not agree with. Most of the time I don't, most of the time I'm just trying to transition. I will say that uh, (laughs) a lot of the time I do agree with that stuff. Drink every time Sam and Cole quibble over an amazingly minor distinction, such as (laughs) dribbling in tight quarters versus dribbling laterally through traffic. Drink every time this is the smartest and best basketball podcast out there and the only podcast offering such a combo of college and uh, NBA analysis. Well, mm, you wouldn't be drinking on that one, I feel like. Congrats. You are drunk now and have learned a lot. You now have sophisticated opinions to help you feel superior in Twitter arguments. That is a legendary review. Like, this is like a great onslaught of reviews here. That's fantastic. I think there's enough content there to get you drunk like 35 times. So <laughs> take it easy with your alcoholic choice there because most of those are applicable in heavy doses. Yeah, please only do like half of those things. Do not do not do them all. If you're, if you're actually going to play this drink game, <laughs> the Game Theory Podcast does not endorse actually participating in this drinking game. But if you are, please limit it. <laughs> to maybe like three of these things every episode not all of them yeah especially like the quibbling over little details like that's enough right there probably for like three nights of drinking so yeah <laughs> no, that, that'd be bad that is a legendary review thank you zion killing him son that is just a it's just an overall great name great review uh i'm pumped about all of that that is tremendous stuff actually that was a fucking clinic that was incredible <laughs> um all right, I think that's about all we got. I went to see uh, went to see Hobbs and Shaw last night. That was great. There you go. That might make my agenda at some point. I, I still have to see the new Tarantino movie. Um, so that's first on the agenda. I know you've already seen that as well. Oh uh, yeah, I saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Once upon a, Once upon a Time in Hollywood is definitely better than um, Hobbs and Shaw. Hobbs <laughs> and Shaw is just delightful. Like it is absolutely uh, just a fun movie in every way. Like it. <laughs> It's not the smartest movie in the world, and it's probably like a mid-tier Fast and Furious movie, but it is 
just delightful. Not that we're endorsing this again, but if you want to partially partake in this the Game Theory podcast drinking game, partially, I think that Hobbs and Shaw would be a good movie to see after doing so, um, just by the oh, previous. I, but uh, I told Laura uh, to see Hobbs and Shaw, who's like not a Fast <laughs> and Furious fan. She brought like a good amount of wine and had much more fun uh, with the movie than I think she would have had if she hadn't brought the wine. Yeah, I saw The Lion King recently. It was a disaster on multiple fronts, like predicted, just because you can't show emotion with these kinds of <laughs> created animals to the level that you need to. And uh, one thing I'll say is not including the Mufasa line of like, you have forgotten like who you are, therefore you've forgotten me. Not having that line in there just absolutely pissed me off. So like that was like the, you have to have that line if you make or remake Lion King. So I, I would not suggest people watch that. If you want to see one of these, you know, live action Disney movies, go see Aladdin. That was easily the best in my opinion. Yeah. I have no real desire to see <laughs> Lion King. I will see it at some point, but I just, I don't know why I can't explain. I'm just not intrigued by it. It was not good, man. It was really, really not good. Yeah. It sucks. This has been the Game Theory Podcast. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, Android, whatever podcasting app you use. Please leave more reviews on Apple Podcasts. That would be spectacular. Uh, and we will read them if they are excellent. I've got a couple in the holster already uh, that are just primo reviews. If you leave us a really, really good one, we will make sure and read it on the show. Uh, go read the Stepian. Uh Go to The Athletic, subscribe there, please. But until next time, we'll talk soon. Bye.